Hey everyone, welcome to the world's okayest entrepreneur, the podcast for the okay entrepreneur who doesn't have an MBA and is just kind of figured it out on the fly. Today on the podcast, we have Chad Hetherington, a serial entrepreneur and somebody that's probably behind a lot of the brands that you know and love that's helped build them to where they are today. His story is one of just like tenacity and just curiosity all at the same time. Chad was uh, kind enough to bring a bunch of Australian wine to us because he is Australian. And it also ended up being one of our longest podcasts, but for very good reason. So definitely listen to the end because this story is going to wind and take turns in ways that you don't expect because we didn't expect it. So buckle up and get ready. Onto the show. All right, Chad. So kind of as a tradition now, it's becoming on this podcast as we pretty much ask you to go back to the beginning. So who was Chad as a child? Probably depends who you ask. <laughs> That's a really good answer, actually. Uh, I was, you know, if you if you ask my mom, she'll probably say back then at least, born entertainer. Mm-hmm. So sort of, you know, we'd have lots of parties at the house or at friend's house. I was always the one that was getting together with the other kids and saying, let's put on a concert. Let's charge the parents five bucks, maybe less than, but let's like, you know, play this song. We'll do, you know, sing it, dance, whatever. And, you know, we'll get paid. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I was super into music. That was like my thing, which I loved, which was actually the thing I thought I'd get into. Love film and television. Anything sort of entertainment was what I loved as, as a kid. And, but, you know, I grew up in a, fairly working class household and inside of Adelaide in, in South Australia. Dad was a car mechanic, mum was a mom, and had a brother and sister who, you know, uh, I was the oldest. You know, at the time, we lived like a, I thought, like, actually it was really good childhood, uh, understanding value of hard work, you know, watching dad slog it out seven days a week. Did he own his own mechanic shop? He was uh, independent for okay. 30 odd years. I yeah. think he had a couple of ventures sort of over that time that didn't really work out, but I always knew him as sort of, yeah, as, a, as an independent. Tons of times, I mean, we, our driveway was like full of cars, like clients' cars. Yeah. I know and, the driveways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, there's oil everywhere. Yeah. You know, engines, car parts, all over the... So I'm guessing that smell, there's this, a smell that's associated with cars that you probably find nostalgic. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I do now. Yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. I mean, it was... Um, you know, I, I probably didn't get, obviously didn't get into the car thing till, you know, like teenage years. And then we'd like steal my dad's, not steal, we'd borrow my dad's cars when they go out, <laughs> when they go out of town. Yes. And my friend and I would drive around the block a hundred times and learn how to drive. That's like how we taught ourselves to drive. Oh, yeah. What was the best car that you borrowed? I, I, it's, I, I don't know, because they're probably not cars here. I don't know if they're the same models or not, but like, like I used to love the, like, he had this one friend who had this pretty cool like Holden Commodore which is an Aussie car like uh old like 1979 around that time anyway like Ford Escort which was like pretty souped up yeah <laughs> so I was like I'm taking that one I give my friend the ship box <laughs> we just <laughs> yeah. go do laps around Osborne Avenue and it was fun it was, it was yeah super cool but yeah dad was like he had workshops sort of all across uh not like he always one at a time but he would always sort of you know find a spot for six months to a year to two years and that's where he would work from all of his tools were there and you know we'd always go there and hang out help him out where we could and then as cars became more interesting to me then I actually started learning how to fix cars mm-hmm. he was buying and selling lots of cars so like buying cars at like the damaged auctions and I'd go with him and 
learn how to like bid against others on yeah you know cars that you're paying five hundred to two thousand dollars for. Go home, we'd like repair them, fix the plan, uh, sort of build a plan, and then um, yeah, you know, flip them. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really cool. It was like I just did it because that's what he did, and I had nothing else to do. I was like, I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, or whatever. But it was cool. Like now, looking back, going that was a pretty cool experience to have mm-hmm. at that age. Right. Do you think it helped kind of inform the way that you do things now? Because like, there's two things I kind of picked up in your story, which is one is like this little bit of a fearlessness, just kind of like I'm gonna take this car and take it for a drive, but then also this kind of learning that you can go buy something that can be fixed, and then you can make money on that and basically put some time into it quick and then you can turn around and fix it yeah and scale it and sell it i think there's part of that and i mean now looking back it says yeah that that there's probably mm-hmm. part of that 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 certainly helped i probably look back and say like the big teaching there was probably probably just extreme hard work yeah you know like a never give up even when shit hits the fan just fucking figure it out you know smash through the wall and just keep going yeah and ship it Correct. I saw my dad have some shit days, you know, and he'd come home and it was, you know, it was, you know, not, it's not fun, right? You know, but um, he'd be over it by Saturday. Uh-huh. You know, the weather would be good and he's on, <laughs> he's, he's, he figured out the problem. Oh. He'd be up all night reading those books. You the know, manuals. Like, yeah. Yeah. The explosive diagrams, basically. And be able to fix it. I had no idea how he did it. Yeah. 150,000 degree days in Australia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Laying underneath a car. You know, fixing shit. That's... Yeah, we're complaining about the cold. Yeah, I know. Heat. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I know. But that that did. It did. Honestly, it was like that taught me. That taught me hard work. And he always said, like, if you if you outwork, everyone, you don't have to be the smartest person yeah. in the room. Mm-hmm. But if you can outwork, yeah, you should be able to get get pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> and that that that's that stuck with me. Uh-huh. But probably part of like again being working class, uh, being blue collar not understanding any side from the other side of town. Right. Not understanding private schools, not understanding college and university, not understanding business. Right. None of that. Zero. And did you go to college? No. I thought I think, I think I remember that from uh, an interview I heard of yours. Yeah. Is that something you, because we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have either been to college and are kind of disenfranchised by their experience. Yeah. I feel like I feel a similar way about my college experience, but I think I've also, as I've grown older and getting gotten to the where I am now, I think back on the college experience and I think about how much we can we can gain now from just experience. Is that something that you use now with when you're hiring people? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, with stable, obviously, like the last couple of years, we um, ran an initiative called No College, No Worries, uh-huh. which was let's go outside the sort of current talent pool. Right. Where everyone's going. Yeah. Let's sort of look outside the box. Obviously, near and dear to my heart because I never went to college. Mm-hmm. Let's look for people that maybe aren't being taken seriously by the big right. employers. Mm-hmm. Let's give them a fucking shot. Yeah. You know? And when you sit down and you, you know, meet with you know these folks that are doing whatever job at the time just to make ends meet, or the, you know, they couldn't go for health reasons at the time or financial, whatever it was, doesn't mean they suck. But you know, the system tells them. It's crazy because some of the smartest people I know didn't go to college or they dropped out their first year. One person in particular, she dropped out her first year. And then 10 years later, New York University then gave her an honorary degree. Wow. And it's like, I think about those stories like that. And I'm like, there's so much more value in the, the experience that you gain from just going out there and working and <laughs> yeah. seeking something and totally attaining it. 
I mean, the School of Hard Knocks is a thing. I wish it, like, I mean, I don't even know if I wish it gave you a diploma or anything like that. But, yeah. How did that end up going? Like, are you still running that? Well, no, because now Stable is, like, I'm guessing the Accenture wasn't, like, what's run this program. Maybe they were. I don't know. They've got a, another program that's similar. So we okay. sort of merged into that. And it's, you know, sort of running it a little bit differently, but with the same sort of concept, right? Which is, let's look outside the current sort of area for talent and let's yeah. give opportunities to people who are really smart and sharp and have good street smarts or whatever it is, yeah. right? Have awesome attitudes, mm -hmm. you know? And if you hire, I think, on people giving a shit. Oh, yeah. You're going to get the most out of them. Yeah. And they're going to get the most out of it as well. And uh, the two people we hired, one here, one in Bentonville, Arkansas, rock stars, mm -hmm. absolute rock stars. And, you know, without no college, no worries, right? Like that was a really good platform for them to step up in the world and get good experience. And now they work for Accenture. Yeah. Wild. Right. Wild. Yeah. And then they can take that now. And once they are once they feel like they've done the work they, they did with an Accenture, they can take that to another company. Right. Because that's the degree. Exactly. Quote, unquote. Yeah. 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 I mean, they were there for the, you know, the, the um, acquisition announcement, right? Mm -hmm. And which, you know, in the space that we play in, you know, fairly big news and good experience for them. And now they get to network with people on a global level mm -hmm. in the space that they play in. And, you know, you get to watch them grow from afar. And that's like personally for me, like really fun to see. So, I, you know, college wasn't like, I wasn't like anti-college mm -hmm. when I went. I, I was okay at school. Yeah. I was like, I was in a, a band when I was like 15, 16. Mm -hmm. That was like between like helping my dad with the car stuff that I was like manager of our, our little yeah. grunge band. And I was a guitarist. I thought that's, I thought we were going to be like the next silver chair of Australia, <laughs> but we weren't. Um, but we actually are still friends. But randomly in my senior year of high school, I was really good at this one class, which was called work education. Uh huh. And I think it was the first year that they had this class at my high school. What is it? Yeah. It's basically, it preps you for the workforce. Okay. So resume, writing, practical interview, skills. practice yeah. The stuff know. that they really should yes. yeah. so be like. <laughs> yeah. You know, you go and do like internships, right? Uh -huh. For like a week, you know, or during break, right? So we'd get, we're on a different calendar school year than America. Uh-huh. We get two weeks off after every 10 weeks. So are you, are you 12, 12 months a year then? Okay. Cool. Generally, yeah. We, we generally start like end of January and we wrap like December. Okay. Yeah. So we so do the... 10 week, four 10 week blocks. Yeah. Right. And then over holidays a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. So you take like one of those weeks of your two weeks and you go do an internship somewhere. Okay. So I'd go to like a radio station for a week or I'd go to a music store. So if it was music or film and television related, that's where I wanted to to do my experience because that's what I was passionate about. Uh-huh. So, you know, ended up, I think, getting, you know, I got a certificate for like best in class that year out of, you know, my math was shit. I like barely, barely passed math. We call it maths there. Maths. Yes. yes. Barely, There's a barely whole other passed. podcast we'll link to later if you want to get yeah, down into right. the math, yeah. math thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so, you know, I actually felt like I probably just wasn't smart for college, university. I was like, I really dug like this learning about getting into the workforce combined with passion of music and film and television yeah. internships. And when I finished high school, I didn't really know what to do and was like, well, if I'm going to be a music coach, I probably have to be in a band and, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're sort of not doing that anymore. So next love is film and television. And that's what I want to get into. That's where it started. What was it about film and television? I think just like, again, being like that kid that was always entertaining. Like yeah. Five. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and then having music attached to it, you'd right. you know, borrow your, your your friend's video camera, which used to be like yeah. this big. <laughs> totally. And you put the VHS tape in it. You set it back. You try and make a music video. Well, there was no real editing software like yep. we have today. 
So you, you're trying to cut the music video on the yeah. actual VSS, VHS like camera pausing, you know, and it never worked out. Totally. But I just always loved doing it. And so, and then like senior year of high school, like filming all the like parties and sports days and all that stuff. And, you know, I was like, you know, if that's a, that's a space that's interesting to me, I'm going to give, give it a crack. And, um, that, you know, just was what I was into at that time. Uh-huh. How I got in that space was pretty wild because I had no fucking idea how to get into film and television. Yeah. There was, yeah, Adelaide's probably a million-ish people. Okay. I could be off now, but it's like, you know, like decent-sized city. At the time, it was a million. Yeah. It felt massive to me then. Right. Right. And I think it was the day after, it was the day after high school graduation, I went to the city in downtown of, of Adelaide and I went and I went to the old Borders store mm-hmm. and I was like I'm gonna like get some books about like film and television like how to edit how to shoot how to do all this yeah. stuff and as I was walking down the mall I saw this place called uh, Pride's Business College and they had a um, sign there for video production for a course okay just ran and like I'd heard my mum talk about it before she's like maybe you go do like a private course or something yeah, yeah. just yeah. to learn how to do it properly so I went and got a flyer Turns out my mum already had like the whole thing. She like got the flies already. She's like, I've been fucking trying to tell you about this for a while. She's like, literally been telling you forever, but yeah. you've got to do it yourself. So, and yeah. then go to Borders and walk in there. Now, of course, I go straight to the music section. You used to put on the headphones to just listen to yeah. CDs. I'm like, well, I'm here for a fucking reason. Like, get go get a, a book on cameras. And I was walking past biography section and I saw Richard Branson's Losing mm-hmm. My Virginity. Uh-huh. And I knew of Richard Branson because my mum loved him and version was, you know, a, a cool yeah. brand in the music space and whatever. So I ended up just buying that randomly. I'm like, I'm going to read this guy. So I'm not a reader. All right. Probably the last book I read. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. I was like 16, 17. And I was like, man, this, like I read the book. I was like, this guy makes business look really freaking cool. Like, I wonder if I could ever combine having my own company, doing film and television, being in media, having music, yeah. like building this next sort of entertainment business. And that sort of gave me my first like next level of inspiration in in the business world. So I think after I finished that book, after just a few days, started applying to all the TV stations for internships, started like reaching out to all the production companies, like literal yellow pages shit. Yeah. Uh And obviously I'd done nothing. So no one's hiring me. Right. So I was like, well, I'll go do that course and like just keep knocking on doors so I can like at least learn how to fucking hold the camera when I show up if I do get something. Because I don't want to get like an internship and someone's like, hey, uh, can you like go assemble that light? And I don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) That would be that, that guy. So so when did that, did like learn how to edit, how to hold a camera, how to light, how to make short films. Like, and I just, it was like, fuck, this is awesome. Right. And fortunately I got my first gig. I think I pissed off a lot of people like by just constantly hounding them for free work, which is crazy. Cause like you think about it, it's like if I had a (laughs) kid knocking on my door saying like I'll work for free for you or do anything, I was like, come in. Seriously. Things have changed. Let me be very clear. We all used to be like, I'll take an unpaid internship. I just want the practice. I just want to understand. And right. now people are like, what? No, you cannot do that. That is a, like, you, like, yeah. Like, how dare you not pay somebody for giving them like experiences? And you're like, fine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wish people would be like, hey, can I come help pack boxes? It's crazy, right? Yeah. It's crazy. I'd love to teach you. Oh, I took, I've, I've done like three unpaid internships. Right. So I feel you. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's funny because it sounds like something that you learned from Richard Branson essentially was Richard Branson is like the master of trying new things, being rejected or failing, and then just like, we're like, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's like the, the, he has a propensity for just like taking a beating. Yeah. yeah. It's like being relentless. Yeah. You know? And again, that working class side of me yeah. was like, I'm not giving up. 
right? right? Like I've just started, I'm 17 years old. Yeah, I got my first job like carrying cables on the Aussie football field. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, you meet the cameraman, a bunch of the other other folks, and there you get another call for another job, another one. And, um, and then someone calls and it's like, hey, we actually... We'll pay you for this gig you mm-hmm. know, if you come and just like meet us on set up like down south. I'm going to shoot this episode, this TV show. Someone got sick. Can you come in and like pay you I don't know, 150, 200 bucks something? That first paid gig is so sweet. Yeah. So they're like, you know, just let us know, you know, some paperwork, fill in your company name. And what's company name? The hell are you talking about? Hey, you just fucking pay me cash. And they're like, <laughs> no. <laughs> so got to go set up a company now. So when registered, yeah, my business, which was brilliant name. Yeah. Hetherington Media Group. <laughs> and, group. Um, group. A group. And so we're gonna, we were going to be more than this, yeah. right? 100%. Yeah. It was just me. There wasn't sole proprietors. Yeah. You're like, I'm a, I'm a, I was going to say, like, oh, I'm a sole proprietor, but yes, it is. Yes, the Hetherington Group. I know it sounds, I've got big plans here. Yeah. yeah. Pretty funny at 17 coming <laughs> yeah. up with that name. Now looking back, I was like, wow, I was, I mean, co- I was confident. You know, it, it could age well. Like, at least you didn't add like a bunch of Z's to it or True. something like that. So, yeah. But I remember get my first business cards like done up because once I got that gig and set up a bank account like I learned all that shit on the fly like literally just because I was trying to get this first paycheck which I knew was going to come in like 14 days yeah so set up a company set up a bank account get like insurance on yourself all the shit you don't know yeah. right because like you're so you're a contractor right if you yeah they have their own insurance for for that but like you need your own I remember that setting up a business like you go set up the business and they're like well now you have a bank account and you go to the bank and they're like oh you're gonna need insurance now it's like you get more information from the from the next person exactly like, right Yep. Going down the line with. And exactly then you're right. 5K in the hole and you're like, I just I'll pay, do. Yeah, for a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I failed math, yeah. but like, <laughs> this doesn't seem to work out. I understand out. how money, like physical money, I'm very tapped into. Yeah. Makes right. so much money. Yeah. Wait. So funny. Yeah. It was like, it was, again, super, super scrappy. Had yeah. no idea what I was doing. Had no one really to teach me how to do it. I don't know if my dad actually even like physically set up his company, you know, over those years. He just like used his name and that was it. And, you know, whatever it it, like, yeah, so I get these business cards. I put my parents address on it, like operating out of my bedroom. And I had, I couldn't even afford like a web domain. So it was like an old free domain, like angelfire.com slash HMG slash 76 slash something else. Right. (laughs) That was. You can find it. Yes. Yeah. And all it had on there was a logo. Totally. Didn't even have an email address, you know. And if it did, it had an angel fire email or a hotmail. <laughs> I don't even think people want the email. They're just, they want to be able to like search and then be like, okay, this is a legitimate business. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, whatever, I did that for like a few years, uh, just like as a sole proprietor, right? Like just getting gigs. And yeah. I got to work on some really cool shit, like TV shows, documentaries, short films. Like it was like, yeah. And you work up from editing to camera work, to lighting, mm-hmm. to now like producing or directing and getting your taste, you know, in that. And then yeah. that night you get a call and, you know, go and cut the news for, uh, you know, something that they're talking about. And that was my life uh, up until probably 20 years old. So it was like, yeah, two and a half, three years of just sort of grinding. Oh, yeah. Working at bars. Yeah. I was like having regular income. Yeah. And, you know, you'd tell the customers you're actually in the film and television business. Like, They're like, <laughs> like yeah. yeah, sure yeah. you are. Sure you are. It's just like in LA. Watch the episode on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> and at the very end where the credits come out for not even like, a quarter of a second, you'll see Chad Hetherington. Yeah. You're like, let's make this at interesting, actually. I am. Why don't we make this interesting? We'll put some money down on this. And so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, that was like 20, the place I did the film course at, Pride's. 
had called me and they said, you know, you've, you've actually done some shit in the last like few years. And, you know, do you want to come and teach some of those learnings to the students? And we'll pay your salary to, to do it if it if it works out all right. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, come in, like, show them how to use camera. And yeah, like, you're 20 at this time. Yeah, 20 years old. This is a great gig yeah. at 20. It was. Yeah. And they basically, we set a deal. They said, we'll pay you, it was like 50 Gs a year. Wow. Which at that time I was like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's it's still, it's still like, it's, it's good money. Yeah. Right? Even for like, I mean, an adjunct professor makes like under minimum wage now, basically. Yeah. Yeah. In that, the US. That that is. It was like, like, yeah, no more bar work. Yeah. And now I get to sort of double down in the space that I love the mm -hmm. most. And they said, you know, you can also keep doing like your Hetherington media thing. Maybe consider using the students on some of your shoots because it will give them experience. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. This is the group. This is the group. Everybody, this is the group project right now. If you want to pass this course, I need you to edit this in this way. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so it was, it was cool. It was like my address on my business cards moved from Woodville Park at my house to the city. So now, now I'm a little bit more professional. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've got an actual telephone with Archery Machine service that I had one of the students like record, you know, you've called Hetherington Media Group, you know, <laughs> we can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> well, I thought you had one of the students to record that too. Of course. Like, this is your assignment. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I've got, I got some other stories about that, I'll tell you. <laughs> How long we got? <laughs> as long as you want. Yeah. And set records. Yeah. yeah. It was cool. It was like, you know, I do the teaching during the day and it was super fun. I think over two and a half years, I probably had couple hundred students go through, I think, and end up like basically taking over the film school. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing there was just like have them have them shoot shit. Just yeah. Keep them keep it practical. Right. Yeah. Get a camera in their hand and have them make films. And the films can be shit. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. Just get them working on stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was really great. So I'd do that during the day. And then yeah, probably uh what, two thirty, three o'clock, I think, I'd, I'd grab my yellow pages, I'd walk down Rundle Mall circle a bunch of businesses, I'd go back up to the office or to my house and uh, still living at home then. And I would write to all of those businesses, like looking to make a TV commercial for $2,000, like Hetherington Media Company or Hetherington Media Group is is where to come. And fucking started getting calls, right? Like my uh, phone at my office in Adelaide was getting calls and it was like, you know, this jewelry company wants to make an ad, this gym wants to make an ad. And, you know, I'm still doing like some freelance stuff, but all of a sudden I'm getting like the freelance stuff is like, that's you in a studio holding a mic, right? right? Holding a light, holding a camera, editing a story for the news. Now all of a sudden you've got a jewelry company or a gym as a client. Right. And they're going to pay you $2,000. You can't take all that two thousand yourself. Like you need some people to help you. So you got to start budgeting. Right. Out of two thousand, how much is a camera person? How much is a sound? Mm -hmm. How much is editing? How much is you know the six VHS tapes they want at the time, or maybe a DVD if we even yeah. had them then. I don't remember. But yeah, so it got you forced into that. So then Hetherington Media Group, just it's so funny every time I say it, but like HMG, I say like all of a sudden having clients. So now we have clients, and that just changed the whole game a little bit so I could bring the students now onto the as you know interns or paid work to have them help me I'd bring in maybe a, a senior camera operator do some of the stuff and sit there and editor and try and make money out of like two or three thousand dollars and then I would take that finished ad to channel seven channel nine and channel ten in Adelaide I'd go to the sales departments and built really good relationships with those salespeople. How did you find out about them? Was that through the through Pride? The TV stations? Yeah. How did you find out? To, how did you figure out that you could go to the, those different stations and then talk to the sales department? 
you know, there's there's productions one side, which is where I was. That yeah. my yeah. whole life was production, and then media is the other side. Okay, and you know, TV ads obviously no good without it actually being on TV. And so, <laughs> so yeah, you got to talk to people that I'd never really associated with before, right? Yeah. It was always on the production side. Mm-hmm. So you know, I would. I'd go around and say, hey, this like, yeah, this jewelry company's got twenty five grand to spend on media. And you know, the stations would sort of bid out their best proposals. Sure. I would I would go with the okay. jewelry company at each of these meetings because they were my client. Yep. I thought I made this beautiful piece of art, like mm-hmm. this like commercial, which was beautiful and sparkly. And um and yeah, I just did that over and over and over again. And then at nighttime, I'd go to every single networking event I possibly could okay. that was in Adelaide. Like mm-hmm. opening of an envelope, I'd be there. So you were basically like in search of information. Like that's how you figured and out. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. you could basically go pitch this stuff to, to news stations and things like that. Yeah. Like you had your ears open. Correct. And the more commercials I make, yeah. right? It's like cool, better for my business. Right. I'm helping, like I got students helping me. They're getting more real world experience. And many of them actually went on yeah. to actually having jobs in the industry. And, but yeah, super scrappy. Right. Like, yeah. And, you know, really low budget shit, but super fun. Like had an absolute blast doing that. And but you were addicted to the momentum. Yeah, it was just fun. I had clients now, you know. And yeah. yeah, I'm still shooting weddings on the weekends every now and then. And but now I'm making corporate videos and T V commercials mm-hmm. for yeah, you know, these little retailers in Adelaide and uh, building relationships with all these networks. And after a while, it flipped. And when this flip happened, it was like another whole game changer. The station started calling me and the salespeople were like, I've got a client who needs an ad made and they've only got five grand. Mm-hmm. None of the other production companies in town can make this ad for five grand. Right. Could you do it? Right. So I was like, fuck yeah, I can do yeah, it. Yeah, I was doing it for 2K. I will happily do this for 5K now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I don't have to shop this around to everybody. Yeah, Great. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, are you still by yourself? I mean, you said you have like the student's help, but you truly are like the only employee still yeah, of yeah. the media group. Yes, yes. basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing in freelancers, right? Who are like yes. legit camera people and like they're really good and the students are, are just it's pure experience. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that's like a, still a little bit of it's truly how it still operates is that a lot of it is still freelance because you just the industry ebb and flows, I'm yeah. guessing a lot. Yeah. I ended up partnering with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Quentin Kennehan, who was in Adelaide, a filmmaker. And uh, he was great at script writing and like the general creative, right? <laughs> when you're in the grind, what I quickly learned there was you can't be the business guy running around town getting all these clients plus doing creative at the same time. And when you when you put that together sometimes, you just, he's, he's like- Mush, mush of, brain? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You end up spitting out the same ad that you just shot. Yeah. Right. You got to bring in other people. So we partnered up uh, together and started doing more and more and more. And yeah, all of a sudden it was like, oh shit, now we're making ads for 30 grand, right? And this is this is pretty cool. And yeah, it sort of just it sort of just grew from there. Then finally decided, like, oh, fuck, I should probably do this like properly. Film school ended up falling. Well, the whole school project ended up actually falling over. Oh, okay. So yeah, but that's okay. It actually, fell over at the right time because by that point, I was like, I was doing so much work in You're like, actual yeah. thing, and that which is my passion. I was like, not set out to be a teacher. I was yeah. just doing it because I wanted to not do bar work. Yeah, they said I'm going to give you 50k. You're like, yeah, 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 that's sure, right, great, exactly. Cool, cool, cool. Sounds amazing. Oh, and you can use the equipment, yeah. right? So it's like, right, right. So yeah, I could make ads for two grand. Yeah, so it was a couple other friends of mine. We decided, hey, like I've got all this work coming in and I'm looking around at the industry in town and there's like a couple of the good players that, that are there who are known for like high-end, top-end work. Yeah, I think there's this whole like smaller to mid-market area that we can attack and we could be more scrappier and we can go over to Sydney and Melbourne where there's bigger budgets, but we could probably you know do it for a little bit less and bring it here and sort of everybody wins type scenario. And that 
and that company was called Logic Films. So I started that with, with two mates out of a friend's uh, accounting office. And that was finally getting away from the HMG yeah. <laughs> into like a legitimate company. And on day three, we got a call from a company called Cartridge Wild, which was the old stores where you'd go refill your uh, oh, yeah. printer ink. And they were actually headquartered in Adelaide. And they needed a, a corporate video done in 32 languages for all their franchisees. That'll keep you busy. That kept yeah. us busy. And that that got us very quickly out of my friend's accounting office into <laughs> an actual office uh-huh. and my first employees. How'd that go? Yeah, I mean, how did you even know that many languages? Like, where did you start? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to ask around. Yeah. Right? yeah, and and figure out how you're going to to do. First, you need to make the video, right? Sort of in English, make it perfect. You know, that's that's a month or two of work, and then you get that done, and then end up finding that there are you know companies and services out there that can okay. help with translations and things like that. So you get new voiceovers re-recorded. You might have to do reshoots every now and then. Mm-hmm. You were just 20 years too early for the AI dubbing. I know, so, I yeah. know, unfortunately. <laughs> I know, I was like Mr. Beast is having to pay all these people to do dubbing and now they're like, everybody can do dubbing now. And I'm like, look at that. Instantaneous. It's so wild. It's yeah. so wild. It is. Yeah, it was much harder then. This is like 2003 or four. Yeah. Yeah. Your first big project then. And so now take, take us from there. Yeah. Found a friend with a an office which was nicer than the accountant's like back room mm-hmm. and negotiated a month by month lease, right? My favorite. Yes, same. <laughs> <laughs> and the deposit of Cartridge World was that paid for so the paid for the first edit suite that we had, which was a Final Cut Pro four maybe. Yeah. Back then. I think my dad like helped me find a desk for the suite that he like bartered with someone on some someone owed my dad something on a car yeah. and fixed it like got, I mean like legit like got a desk or two in there. I love those early days stories like that. Just getting your yeah trying to put stuff together you don't even think about. And it was um it it was wild. And then we got a second client and a third client and again you've got then all the layering of the T V station yeah. salespeople who are bringing work to you. And definitely we'll go on the record, like Dan O'Rourke, who was at Channel 9, who actually was like hanging out with last March in Adelaide, I hadn't seen him in like 15 years, was like my unofficial business development machine because he was, you know, young guy like me, but on the media side coming up. Mm-hmm. And he was very aggressive in making sure that every client of, you know, was, was advertising on Channel 9. And I was his sort of go-to on production side. So he and I would co-pitch together. We'd drive up to businesses all over Adelaide, like pitching. And, you know, he helped the start logic, like, honestly, like with all of those clients. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was like three of us, my two partners, they had other jobs at the time. And then we scored our first like TV show. It was a local TV show called Feeling Good, which was sort of a lifestyle show hosted by a good friend of mine, Troy Gray. And never forget the first series that we produced. We brought on a really good cameraman. We shot the hell out of it. And first episode is, I think it was due, well, the first two episodes were due, I think, like on the Thursday. Mm-hmm. The first one to air on the Saturday. And this is like the Monday, I think. And we're working on tight budgets back then. Yep. So I can't afford a $300 an hour editor to come yeah. in and do this with me. Right. I'm out getting new clients. I've got all these meetings. How the hell am I going to get this first episode, like, basically done. Fortunately, I was trained editor. I was fucking doing it myself. Yeah. I can't pull any favors on this one because it's like a TV show and like, it's just, it's my business. It's early. I don't want to, I don't want to be known as like someone who's like not paying people to like, I'm just not, right. never good with that. Right. Yeah. You know, it's actually one of my biggest fears. Yeah. So yeah, it was like, decide, fuck it, do it myself. Sat there 
for nearly two days straight and edited yeah. those first two or three episodes. And back then, the machines weren't as fast as they are now. So we had a G5 like Mac, and it was like fairly quick. But you'd hit render once you were like basically <laughs> yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you'd like four hours to go, right? Yeah. All right. Well, sometimes it wasn't accurate, as you know. Right. Sometimes yeah. it was only two hours. Yeah, my now mother-in-law thinks this is fucking crazy of me, but I just sleep on the floor waiting for the render to finish. I remember friends of mine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've had to do stuff in Premiere and it's like very nerve-wracking and then you're just kind of like, you just kind of have to keep watching it a little bit. You're not like, it's four-hour surrender and you're like, I'm just going to leave for a while, you know? Right. It's like your no. baby, you're like, no, like I'm just going to stay. That's right. Keep and check on, checking in on and you. At that point, it's like 4.30 in the morning. You're like, fuck, I'm going to be back here in three hours anyway. So like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd sleep. This is what I mean, my mother-in-law was like. Couldn't believe this story. It's like when I first met Kate's mom, and I'm telling her I used to sleep on a shoe, and like because that was the comfiest thing I could find in the room. It was smaller than this room, right? And it's like I didn't have a pillow in there. Yeah, it's like <laughs> that was my office, you know. Like to sleep on the side of my shoe sure. for like two hours, wake up, and then like go and do it again. <laughs> but we fucking got it done. Yeah, and it turned out great. We end up producing uh, maybe five, six series yeah. of that show. But yes, yeah, such good times. Like actually being able to just say, fuck it. I'm going to just do it myself, roll up my sleeves. I'm not too good for anything. Get me in there and like, I will get this done. I was, I kind of miss those feelings. And I feel like it, there's got to be a way to get back to that is that feeling of like, you've literally got nothing to lose when you're that age. And when you've like just started this business and like, you've got your first few clients coming in, they're getting bigger and bigger. And again, you still have nothing to lose. Right. As you're like, Worst case scenario, I just backtracked two years. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I'd moved out of home by then. Didn't live far from the city, but you know, so yeah, I had rent now. That was it. Like looking like at the time, that's huge. Like right. I got I got fucking eight months left on this. How the fuck am I gonna pay that? Right. Yeah. I'm just starting a business. I'm not making any money. Yeah. Like making zero now. So that fifty K that I was making is like gone. And now I'm making zero. And because I gotta pay people. Mm -hmm. who are sitting here every day who are production managers and coordinators who are like making sure this thing works. But, you know, it graduated. It then moved to a bigger office not that long thereafter. So this is like 2005 then? Yeah, four or five. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're sort of looking at everything being like, all right, like this is good. We've got a good stable of clients. We are making lots of shit. Yeah, 2005, I think we're probably up to 15 people now yep. as mm -hmm. employees. I'm probably paying myself 12 grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> right? A proper 12, Bare yeah. Barely covering rent. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, it's it's uh, you sort of just like, what? where do we go from here and how do we start doing more? And super randomly, we just started getting asked different questions from clients and different asks and needs. One of those asks was, hey, you guys just produced this corporate video for me. We need 30,000 copies on DVD. Can you guys help us like figure out how we, you know, where we manufacture that? They're like, we went to some like CD duplication company down the street and they want like $4, you know, but that's like 80 grand. We're not spending 80 grand to send these CDs. So I'm like, no problem. I'll take care of it. So I like selling it before I can actually do it. Yeah, you're like, so I try not yeah, to do it now. I was about to ask. I was like, do you know how to do this? Right, you said, oh yeah. my God, no. <laughs> So I ended up finding this manufacturer in Taiwan and again, like stayed up all night for weeks on end, negotiating with factories like Alibaba was like maybe around, uh, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know if it was something like that where you could get, yeah, you could find companies that would 
duplicate yep. it CDs was, and DVDs. I believe it was, and I think it was real like baseline. Yep. It's a little rough right now still. It, yeah. You just got to understand the interfaces. Yeah. It's just a little. Yeah. That's so funny when you, go out, when you go out to the interwebs back then and you're like, I got 20,000 CDs to produce. You get yeah. emails from everyone being like, here's the quote. Oh, you still get emails from everyone. Don't yeah. you worry. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I can produce. Like, you're just like, I need this. And then with some inserts and you catalogs for some shit, you're like, I didn't ask for this. Yeah. I want so you to make this. So wild. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool, though. It was like, we ended up finding someone that could make it for like, you know, 58 cents. <laughs> get it done. We'd sell it for maybe a buck 50. Yeah. Clients happy. Oh, fuck, we just made nearly a dollar a year. I yeah. made $20,000 of profit. So we could keep doing more of this. Right. So, you know, by then I had a good sort of general manager of the production business. We still make it ads and corporate videos and yeah. documentaries and shows. I'm like, but if I can get like, I don't know, 10 of these like CD duplication things in place, mm -hmm. like that's really good cash flow for the business yeah. to start ejecting and maybe finally I'll fucking get paid, yeah. you know? <laughs> and thank God we did that because that helped cash flow a lot apart oh, the I business. Bet. Because, you know, then you're learning about clients that take longer to pay. Yeah. You got to pay all your production outsource people. You got to pay, you got payroll every two weeks. So that that's always an issue, right? It's like, how are you going to yeah. make payroll? And yeah, so with, with us starting to do these sort of other types of work mm -hmm. that was sort of an extension of the business, it just sort of allowed us to bring in more cash flows at that time. And so we were sort of hocking around town being like, we could make CDs and DVDs cheaper than just about anyone. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we got Mitsubishi as a client. We've got like you know, some of the magazines, some of the serial companies that are putting like promotional CDs mm. and DVDs in their box. Yeah. Like remember those like old I do. magazines, like those IT magazines, yeah. the record labels, like Central <laughs> Station Records was my client. Right, yeah. fly to Sydney, open up a North Sydney office. I've got, you know, a handful of people helping me there, like, you know, selling. I'm like packaging shit up. I'm going to DHL on the weekends. I'm sending it yeah. to our factory in, in Taiwan. By that point, I've actually employed someone in Taiwan who's working full-time for Logic. And I've got, they're getting shipped directly from Taiwan to the, the companies. And they're, you know, that's real money for them yeah. because their cost of goods have come down dramatically. Mm -hmm. It's so weird that you like went down this road and like just by trying to figure it out, you ended up like opening up this like niche for yourself. Yeah. Because you, you, you became really good at it. Yeah. It felt supernatural at the time because right. like, the client asked for it. We're like, well, maybe more clients will ask for it. Uh, right. It's like the hub and spoke model of just being like, oh, well, this just seems like a natural like kind of like line for us to go down with our business ventures. Yeah. I'm curious though, because all of a sudden now you're starting to see like easy money a little bit. You're like, well, this money seems easy because I know whereas like production and all of that is, it's very while gratifying manual a little bit because you have to redo it every single time. It's a new commercial. It's new ideation and everything. Were you at a point where you're like, I think I want to sell this part, stop doing this and only start duplicating CDs? Did that ever cross no, your mind? No, because technology changes. Yeah. So you know this is going to last forever. And we're sort of at the tail, you know, like Naps has changed the music business. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess CDs at that point were... I feel like we're just reliving history right now, to be honest. <laughs> like you said Napster and I was like, I was like, oh my God, that's right. I do remember opening up magazines and like there was a CD in there. Oh, yeah. I was like, this is so cool. Yeah. I'm sure you saw the end of the road because you're like, well, there's iPods now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there were fuck ups. Trust me. Yeah. Like yeah. there were times where the factory would call and say, we weren't able to get this done in time. So we're going to ship the CDs in bulk back to your office. And yeah. you have to find a printer to print the sleeves and find the MRA cases for them to go into. I don't have space in my office to do this. So I'd call some of my clients on the TV production side. Like we used to make ads for this company called Funk Furniture, which made like close out furniture, right? Was it was 
massive like Costco style yeah. type of retailer. Yeah. So You're I was like, like, you have warehouses. You have warehouse space. Like, can I borrow this place from 6 p.m. when you close to 6 a.m. the next day? I call my brother. I call my brother and I'm like, any of your mates want to come in and like help me pack CDs to them? Yeah. You're like, like I'm going to buy all the pizza in the yeah, beer. Exactly. I just, you know. I, yeah. I'll pay him like whatever, 10, 12 bucks an hour. Yeah. And they're like, well, how many CDs? I'm like, 25,000. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. So we, I, I was there. I was there with them all. I still got all the photos and videos like that I've still got from that time of us packing yeah. a shit ton of CDs ourselves. And it was awful. Yeah. And so it, yeah. it became it became a little distracting after a little while. And the orders started like, yeah, they were still good and whatever, but it was not the core of the business. But at the time, it was a good boost to just sort of get things on the production side yeah. stronger because we had more cash flow. So yeah. buy an HD camera, add two more edit suites, mm -hmm. add a sound studio, hire more people. You know, all of a sudden we're you know, not the top in town, but pretty close. Yeah. Right? We're doing a shit ton of work and thank God for that little business there for a little bit that just helped yeah. sort of kickstart it. Yeah. But it was never forever. Right. I mean, because yeah, up into this, like, I mean, for kind of for your entirety, but it's like, it was just all bootstrapped the entire way. And like bootstrapping is like, you have to be scrappy. Like there is no way to get anything else no, done. No, the thought of raising money, didn't even know, didn't even know that no, existed. Yeah. Didn't even know why or how you could get people to give you money for a business. Like that wasn't even in my, right. I'm, yeah. from, I'm from Woodville Park. You know, it's like, if you start a business, you start a business, you yeah. find a client, you do it. That obviously That's how it grows. changed over yeah. time. <laughs> and this goes but at that point. Yeah. <laughs> it goes back to the original mindset you had where what your dad said is like, if you work hard enough, you can outwork it somebody. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The next person. Yeah. So you were working all nighters. You're working all nighters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mind it. I thought, I mean, it was tough, but like, you know, whatever, you're 23 years old. Oh, yeah. You can I do love anything. Those, yeah. I, I look back on those like triage moments where you had to like fix something as like, and getting through it and packing those 25,000 CDs as like, I, I look back on those fondly as like that taught me something. Yeah. I hated it, but loved it at the same time. Exactly. I feel yeah. like we're all like now we're like, I look back in that moment, fun, but at the moment, <laughs> let's all be clear where you were like, this is fucking insane. I don't insane. think people understand. Insane. Yeah. It's, it, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah. I saw a friend that just recently posted and she was like, entrepreneurs don't get to take mental health days. I was like, yeah, yeah. that one hits a little yeah, bit. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, started being like, all right, business has grown up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should do an exercise to like forecast revenue for the first time. Never done that in the history of anything I'd started. And CD DVD thing was like good, but like, yeah, let's like maybe look to see where else we can play. Maybe it's like owning our own content. So let's start producing yeah. our own shows and start pitching them to the networks, which we did. We started doing pilots. They were good, never made us money, but they were fun. And SMSs became like the next thing at that, that point in time. Like Australian Idol had just hit. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was like text for you know, this person, yeah. right? If you remember that. I do. So then, you know, you start seeing that pop up sort of in a lot of other places. Yeah. And you're like, all right, where else could I maybe incorporate brand, clients, promotion, SMS, oh, marketing, yeah. and become maybe uh, an agency, mm -hmm. right? That maybe comes up with creative. Yes, we've got the video side, but maybe we can like get into like promotions and advertising and things like that. So I started pitching like the magazines in Sydney and saying like, give me a full page ad for free and we'll give away a car or a... A trip to Hawaii. And so basically, at this point, you're you're starting to formulate this like you're you're working within like cutting edge media. Yeah, trying to anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. trying to see like I mean, when you look at the forecast of the business at that time, you're like, shit. If my edit suites were running at twelve hours a day at three hundred, four hundred bucks an hour, right? My revenue is only like two million dollars, but my right. payroll's why? 
you know, 2.1 million yeah, followers. Right. Yeah. Maybe more. <laughs> this doesn't add up. Yeah. Uh, mass are not massing right now. So it can keep going down this path, like no doubt. But, you know, are there other, are there other things that we can start getting into, which might be complementary to the business, but maybe could help us in terms of scale? So we tried lots of things. And yeah, the SMS thing was cool because like give away a car, you would you know, get 15 mm-hmm. grand back from the, the carriers that would give us their commission back from all the people that voted. I'd be able to bring my clients into those and they would sort of fund the prize the magazine would give the page away for free and then i'd get a cut of all the of all the text right i'd get like 13 to 15 cents of text back and it cost the consumer 55 cents but like telstra and optus and all the carriers would make the bulk of that i'd get my food piece but when enough people vote it's like shit this is good like 15 20 grand right straight into logic and that helped you know so it my business partner was, you know, in the finance space. So he was like, let's take the logic brand and let's like open a finance business. And so we randomly did that. Wait, what is that? How did that work? He was in like finance brokering. Okay. Sure. Yep. So mostly commercial, like, yeah, negotiating with banks for people that are looking for commercial loans, maybe home loans, equipment loans, things like that. And he was like, he was working somewhere else and he was like, we should just do this under logic. And I was like, yes, we'll be the brand. And just like Branson, we can get into anything, right? The marketing side, we're a finance business, and we ran them like as different companies under the same sort of umbrella. And I sort of held, I did the marketing on that side of things. He operated the finance side. I still ran the production company and then all the new shit that we were doing. And it was all good. But at the same point, you're sort of looking at it being like... No, this, this isn't really scaling. Like I'm trying lots of different things. Yeah. And even if I keep going down this like promotional, like SMS thing, it's going to be like DVDs, right? It's like, it's going to expire at some point. So then well, it's just going to be an agency, just be a production house. I wanted more than, mm-hmm. than us just to be that. And so probably just got frustrated. I think at the time, you know, when you're 24, 25 years old, you, you're like coming up with all these ideas. And, you know, at the time in Australia, it was like, go see the government. I'm like, what are you talking about the government? <laughs> well, maybe they can give you a grant to like help you develop this thing and do that, you know. I remember those days. And, you know, it's just, it was a different time then, right? Yeah. And so it was all about, well, I'm not going to do that. So I just got to bring clients along with me on the journey and like get them into new shit and see if I can make other revenues from that client in different ways that are somewhat complementary. The financing was not, but that was a good chance for us to just stretch the brand out a little bit. You know, ultimately at that point, I had a mentor who started out very similar to me, was a little bit older, and his business had gone from a entertainment production house, was somewhat of a competitor to us, to sort of global board games business and full-blown entertainment, like a real legitimate business. Okay. And he was like a mentor at the time, and I spent a lot of time with him. And you know, he basically was like, you know, you just, there's a lot you want to do, a lot you're trying to do. You might not get it done here. So... You know, you've got frustrations like you're making ads for companies. They're paying you 15 grand. They're going into retail and they're making millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, I should get on the retail side. You know, I, I should understand that. So, you know, with his help, you know, I got the opportunity to move to the US and get out of Adelaide altogether. And where'd you move? Hollywood, which is an odd place to get out of the like TV the business. Mo- <laughs> it's also like the most like you either like, of course, I just love that you said Hollywood, like of like all the places you could have. You could say LA. Yeah. It was Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. It's Hollywood. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that whole, I mean, that's a, that's a whole story of that, that transition to get out of everything you've known because of frustrations and looking for scale, you know, going and seeing your business partners and be like, Hey, uh, 
I'm out. I'm going to move to LA and yeah. I'm going to move, um, you know, go do something else because, you know, so I feel like I'm hitting a brick wall here. Yeah. I love what I do. Fucking love what I do. I'm actually like fairly decent at it. I know lots of people in town now mm-hmm. and do I want to be making ads the rest of my life? That was a decision where I probably could. I probably would have been very happy. Yeah. But at the same point, I knew I was off to something bigger. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. But, you know, it was no surprise over those last two years doing all types of different shit outside of production. I was searching for something different. Was it a gut feeling? Was that kind of like you just were following this gut feeling a little bit? Yeah. And I'd always sort of followed the path, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Opportunity opens and it feels right go for it right this person is telling you like you need to go move somewhere else primarily the usa to seek yeah yeah and of course you know i did i went and saw my mom and dad and like yes why wouldn't you go yeah your mom's actually like i've been having these pamphlets i've been storing them up for you for years just wait for you to i know exactly yeah (laughs) yeah oh my god she's actually like i've been holding an apartment for you for two years like yeah (laughs) yeah it was like other half of town telling me no you shouldn't go no you shouldn't do it you should be here. But, you know, it felt right at the time. Yeah. And, you know, this was a mentor. I was, you know, it was inspiring to me and mm-hmm. we had similar path to me yeah. and had been successful in doing it. Yeah. And I was very much like about being around people that were inspiring and mm-hmm. people that were motivating because I always got the best out of myself. I felt that way. Um, and, you know, I can learn, right? And and I'd, I've done all this learning for the last five or six years, but now I can take that to a whole nother level and go on the big stage now and move to a country I've never been in and put myself in complete discomfort, which I love because I'm never comfortable right. being comfortable. It seems yeah. like this is a common theme with you now hearing from your childhood and to where you go is like, you're curious, you're on new opportunities, like a like a bloodhound on a on a trail, like on a scent, and you you just like you. I feel like you just like you're fearless in regards to that. Like that's something that I kind of keeps coming up in this. Yeah, yeah. I was never like bail, right? It's like people talk about a lot, right? You know, it it never it was. What's the worst that could fucking happen? Right. Oh yeah. I still think like that. I don't need much, honestly. It's not, you know, now it's a little bit different. I got wife, two young boys. But so, yeah, a little bit different. But I still go into everything thinking that. I think it's always like I've been doing this podcast and I've really kind of humbled myself. I was like, truly, like the worst that could happen in a first world country is really not that much. There's so many safety nets and like things in place. Like, I mean, let's just look at the WeWork guy for a second here. Like, yeah. He's yeah. going to be fine. Yeah, like, yeah. Always my, I always look look at those people. I was like, who have just, I feel like have failed so hard, but I see them just like get back up and they do this like another amazing thing. Oh, he's living yeah. his best life. Find like, like 50 yeah. people to fund their new venture. I'm like, you didn't see the last disaster they did? They, like, right. you got, you're no, gonna I mean, and like financially, they're actually fine because there's right. so many safety nets in place. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's no such thing as an overnight success. It's just not. No, it takes 15 years to make an overnight success. It's yeah, Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, I never had a teacher per yeah. se, right. right, teaching me how to do this shit. It was literally like fail, fail, fail mm-hmm. over and over again. Learn how to fucking do it better next time. Yeah, right. And not everyone has that flexibility, right? So right. it's harder. There's more sometimes. You know, people it's high stakes, right? But calculate is not the right word. But I don't know. I just I was lucky in the sense that you know if it didn't work out, right? Again, I wasn't. You know, my life wasn't over. I mean, you had a you had a your inner monologue was a teacher because like a teacher is really just there to encourage you to keep trying. Yeah. Like they're just they're they're like they're there to grade you and say you failed, but like just keep going, keep doing right. it better next yeah. time. Yeah. Like you already had that inside of you. Yeah. 
So it was wild. I was like, moved here. So how old were you when you decided to move to Hollywood? 25. Okay. Oh my God. I feel like you lived in a lifetime. Like, I know. Uh, yeah. like, I was like, wait a minute here. Oh, we're only up to 25. Oh, Got sorry. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I can speed it up. He's only 29. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I always say, like our mutual friend Ashley's always like, I'm just I'm living my best 27 life for perpetually. So right. yeah. I try not to do this now. I try hard to... If I hear someone complaining that's like in their very early 20s, I'm like, fucking, you have no idea what I was dealing with yeah. when I was 21, 22 years old, right? And I try not to do that at all anymore. Right. A lot more calm. But yeah, I was yeah, 25, flew in a Qantas jet and in, in LA, straight to the office, met my now wife, Kate, who worked for the same company, Imagination Entertainment. Uh, she was their sales lead. Okay. So when you came here, you had a job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So mentor Shane brought me over. Uh, to work for Imagination. And I became sort of the head of special projects, which was sort of being like right hand to the CEO, mm -hmm. helping them. Okay. Another entrepreneur wanting to get into more new shit. Yeah. Right. So I love that job title. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. And so he was in board games, uh, global leader in pioneering the DVD board game. So Deal or No Deal, Family Feud, Fact or Crap, oh, yeah. Battle of the Sexes, all of those was created was by Imagination. Life, life one of them? That was a different company. Bummer. Yeah. I know. I was the Oregon Trail. I know we're dating. Was he uh, like a, a pioneer in that? Please. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It was fun. It was like, how do I take board game licenses yeah. and titles and put them into other shit like calendars, game books, mobile, mm -hmm. console. And so, yeah, didn't know what Walmart was when I got here. Did, you know, we had Target in Australia, but it wasn't like Target here. Didn't know what SKUs were. Didn't know what per store per week was. Didn't yeah. know any of that, but quickly learned. Yeah. And so was that one of their main clients then? Like just selling like all the retail. Of, yeah. Yep. Yep. And they, they had, I think at the time it was probably like 70 or 80,000 yeah. storefronts that they sell to globally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So big distribution. This is a company out of Adelaide that's like worked their way to the big stage and have offices all over the world making board games in all these languages and selling them to big retailers. And so that's your Minneapolis connection since Target is based here. And then were they also selling to Walmart then? So is that how you got to know Bentonville more? Yep. My wife was in the business. She worked at Imagination in sales. We met literally my first day in the country. <laughs> You're like, hi, I'm Jack. Yeah, that's right. She's like, I'm from, from Minneapolis. I'm like, yeah. heard of it. Had you heard know? of the Muddy Ducks. That's oh, about yeah. it. That's all I know. That's all I know. Couldn't picture it on a map, yeah. right? And... Uh, it was great. We started hanging out like pretty early on and she taught me a lot about the business. Shane taught me a lot about the business. The people I worked around talked me a lot about the business and yeah, got to, you know, it was a really cool business to be a part of, to help bring new ideas into CPG products, get a license for it, pitch retailers, get the yes, and then start to build a team around that certain division. So I did that for a couple of years and where we were there, we were you know, starting to do distribution for other products because we had the direct pipeline into all these retailers. And then I went out as consultant and went out sort of on my own helping brands figure out retail strategies. So I was in Minneapolis a lot. So Target and Best Buy, Kmart, Sears at the time. I don't think Toys people quite realize how big of an agency town this is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's as I got to know the country more, you know, yes, New York is big. Yes, LA is big. Chicago is pretty big yeah. in the in the space of CPG and retail, but Minneapolis is like pretty big time. I'd say like probably one of the biggest in terms of CPG and retail. I feel like per capita, it's like it's not, it's a sneaker. It just is like it kind of sneaks up on you and you're like, this doesn't make actually any sense. And then you're like, whoa, wait a minute here. And personally, from working in New York, what I've been told from many people out there is that nobody outworks the Midwest work ethic. Right. Yeah. Like this is 
people will work harder here. Yeah. When I when I was coming here and get to know people here in town, yeah, it was it felt very similar to Adelaide in the sense of the people were similar. We were complete other sides of the world. And yeah, the climate's different, but like, yeah, for the most part, the people work ethic is is very different. Runs deep. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, it just felt super natural mm -hmm. to me. And yeah, I, I was helping these brands get into retail. Mm -hmm. So I was picking up the phone, calling retailers, trying to get their attention so they would look at a product or brand, you know, generally successful and helping them guide strategy and think through how they're going to show up on shelf. And it was really fun. It was like a good chance to sort of be back on my own again and mm -hmm. like just figure out how retail works maybe from the retailer's point of view not right. just the brand's point of view yeah. so understanding like what are you thinking for your category for the next two years and mm -hmm. what holes do you have mm -hmm. what innovation you're looking for things like that so um yeah it was like i took gluten-free products to target back in 2008 you know found the biggest pioneer Found, yeah, the, found, found the biggest, I don't think it went in because it was super early. It's like almost, it's like you have to time it right because it's almost too early then. It was too early. Yeah. 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 But There's found, found the biggest fit. like vendor out of Whole Foods. Yeah. And they said, yeah, let's start working together. We were like, you know, going to Target and like talking about it. I love the category. It's super small. And like super randomly, I was working with a beef company that was owned by Greg Norman, the mm. golf, Australian yeah. golfer. And, um, he had like a whole bunch of different companies and it, it was a Australian source like business, which mm -hmm. I was helping with. There was like uh, beauty products. There was like personal care. So sort of across the board in terms of like who I was able to work with. So being able to like one, understand all these different types of right. companies, yeah. just like how they work, how they operate, what the margin structures are. Mm -hmm manufacturing all these types right. of things and then trans you know transport into sort of the retail environment how does the shop on shelf how does it sell through what's is the consumer going to buy your product over someone else's so a lot of that is sort of what i was doing so, so i'm just more curious like is it a completely different mindset from what you were doing before when you were kind of doing like production and really kind of like i mean it is storytelling and everything but now you're actually like very much so like customer side of being like this retailer has a need they want to fill this product space was it a big leap for you or actually was it very natural it felt natural it's very <laughs> it, there's yeah are there some areas that cross over i think for sure yeah, yeah. The, the creative marketing side of yeah. things certainly came over but you know what i fucking listened mm -hmm. i kate will say this i did happy hours with fucking anyone i could right going back to the old days of like networking events and stuff yeah. like that any town that i was in i'd try and get with a buyer or a cool. assistant buyer or someone on the operations side like a business analyst or something like yeah. that uh, and the brand and i'd just do a lot of listening mm -hmm. sink all that information in never a note taker at all ever yeah but like I'd sink it all in and understand sort of what their objectives were. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to start asking the questions in a little bit different sort of way mm -hmm. because, you know, they've got their objectives as a retailer. The brand's got their objectives. My job is to help both parties sort of win, mm -hmm. right. bring them together to help, you know, all both rise, right? Yeah. So if I don't understand the retailer's objectives and goals, how the fuck am I going to help this brand right yeah. well i was just going to call the buyer and be like oh you should buy twenty thousand units of this product let's you know maybe fucking 30 years ago yeah <laughs> i feel like there's like a processing power like as a brand you only have so much bandwidth yeah you can't really just put yourself in the retailer's bandwidth because like that's yep. that's their bandwidth like yeah. they only have that correct so you almost need somebody else to be like the the extender yeah exactly like you're in market and you've got good relationships so 
ask those questions and help us figure it out. And uh, I was doing consulting at that point for a broker in town, so like a rep firm, and helping them with like, you know, a handful of different brands, mostly at Target and Best Buy. And one day the owner comes up to me, he's like, oh, this, kid's, this kid's in the office today. He's got this really cool company. I think you would dig it. You should come and check it out. And it was this company called Quirky, which had just started up. And met Ben very briefly. Like I was maybe one of 40 in the room, mm-hmm. you know. Big agency. Yeah. Lots of people. <laughs> and seen this kid who, 2021 20, at the time, he just sold his first company, Mophie, which is the old juice pack phone charger. Oh, oh yeah. And he was onto this idea of crowds, crowdsourcing is the wrong word, but crowdsourcing ideas from communities and people around the world who have ideas for products, but yep. don't know how to get them to market. Mm-hmm. And he would be the the engine to make the products right. and actually get them to retail. I, I thought it was the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard. Oh yeah, super yeah. smart. And um, so Consumer Electronics Show 2010, I think it was. So January, it's in Vegas, it's every year. Mm-hmm. I just moved to Minneapolis maybe two months before that and just got married, moved to Minneapolis. Kate was happy, she's back home. I'm happy because we're both always here for work. Mm-hmm. So we've got like some... And it's comfy here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we lived in uh, St. Louis Park and oh, yeah. uh, in an apartment at Excelsior Grand. And by the way, the rent's a lot cheaper than yeah. LA. <laughs> You're like, the quality of life just did Yeah, it's improve. quite good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a Starbucks across the street. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. pretty cool. And yeah, so I met Ben at CES. And uh, actually, I was late for the meeting because I couldn't fucking find the booth. I'm like running around being like, where the fuck is this booth? And ended up running in front of him right near the, the bathroom, actually. He was like, hey, like, we met in Minneapolis. No and like, you know, I want to talk more because I think what you're doing is super cool. He's like, come meet me tonight at the Encore Hotel. And I'm always saying no way just because like in Vegas, like trade shows are massive. Massive. Like, and, and then just as, finding a person in Vegas is just like, that just doesn't happen. No, right. Yeah. He's like, you know, his booth is in like W633 and I'm in AA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe AB. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so far away, right? And I have no idea. So I finally like wiggle my way through and like literally went from the bathroom. He's like, come to Encore. We go to Encore and sitting there, met his now wife, Nikki, who was working there, met a few of the other folks that work there and sat with him. And I was like, you know, like I dig what you're fucking doing. Like I'd love to be, you know, through the broker, right? Of course, because yeah. that's who I'm representing. Help you figure this out. And yeah, we, we just got on really well. We like, you know, being an entrepreneur before, now sitting with another entrepreneur who's like a complete visionary, you can just tell, yeah. like, I got to work with this guy. And so I came back to Minneapolis, we sat in the office and everyone's going around the room with what the best thing they saw at CES and I say quirky and everyone sort of laughs. And I'm like, no, this is like, this is he's it. fucking onto something, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, they're like, all right, cool. You take it, you deal with it and like, see if you get any traction. So I start like making focals to Bed Bath & Beyond and Home Shopping Network and Walmart and Target and everyone's fucking like, yeah, we'll meet Yeah. and go to Bed Bath & Beyond. And there's like 20 people meeting us, right? From Bed Bath instead of just like a buyer. And we did this big presentation. Ben's a great storyteller. You know, he presents. And at the end of the meeting, we're like, who's the guy in the front that just like kept asking all the questions that like, that was our CEO. I'm like, geez, all right, cool. That's, yeah. All right, this is next level. Yeah. Hmm. Then we go over to Home Shopping Network down in Tampa, and Mindy Grossman's in the room, who's the CEO, and she's just like, this thing's like brilliant. And Ben ends up finding out that I'm sort of like, you know, doing done this work, I'm a contractor, and he's like, you're going to come work for Quirky now. 
and you're going to move to New York. I'm like, well, I just moved to Minneapolis. <laughs> and, you're like, uh, well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he uh, he got me to he got me to New York. You know, we uh, we actually ended up putting all of our shit in storage in Eden Prairie and moved to New York. Kate was pregnant at the time. We got like a Boy. place in Tribeca. So how much time had elapsed from when you had first moved here to then? Like seven months. <laughs> yeah, it was super quick. <laughs> it was like Hollywood to Minneapolis to New York to New York. Yeah, yeah. And just seeing the country. Like this is like the American experience. Yeah. I tell friends of mine who moved from out of out of country here. They're always like, "Yeah, I moved to New York," and I was like, "This is not the U.S." Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it was cool. I always loved New York, and like it was exciting to move there. And you know, I'd always like being again like film and television background, and like New York was the mecca of like tons of shit. This is 2010 too. Yeah, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. I joined Quirky. I was employee eight. Sat in this office space uh, in. Noho, right? Oh north yeah, Houston, north of Houston, and and I was in Tribeca, so it was like a beautiful, it was like eight, nine blocks away, and yeah, we started like you know making these amazing products that the world had come up with, and my job was to take them to retail, and we did deals with Bed Bath and Home Shopping Network originally, and they were our two big partners, and the thing just grew from there, and you know Ben took that little company and that idea to. 400, 500 people and, um, you know, ended up 2015, unfortunately, like not working mm-hmm. about five years later, but one of the most incredible experiences yeah. of my life oh, yeah. for sure. And getting to work with someone like him was, you know, what a, at the time, probably the best thing that happened to me and one of the best entrepreneurs I could have learned from. Yeah. I mean, it, I love that you're saying that because he was 21 when you first met him. And so at the end, he was 26. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, we've gone from making power strips and cord management to making like air conditioners that are Wi-Fi enabled, first kind. Oh, yeah. And, you know, GE led the last financing round. And, uh, you know, we made a whole bunch of products with GE that were all, you know, Internet of Things yeah. right? in the 2014, 2015. And we had deals with everyone, you know, like probably at that point couldn't have walked into a retail store without seeing Quirky. Yeah. Uh, we had big presence, big end caps at Target, Walmart, QVC, Amazon. I mean, mm-hmm. we were sort of everywhere. What was the lesson learned from that company? Like what went wrong? Because it sounds like such a cool idea that it should last forever. But I feel like with a lot of those companies that should last forever, there's like this mm. one big lesson that's learned. Um. Well, I mean, one, it, it's a company that had is a big idea mm-hmm. real big idea it's hard to scale one product yeah right let alone hundreds of products but you've got this sort of inbuilt community that's already obsessed at a part of the process of helping you make it from a distance who are all invested in the success of the outcome of the product right so if you came up with the idea you'd get a royalty if you voted on the idea you'd get a royalty so all of a sudden you'd be able to sell 10 20 30,000 units to see without even touching a retailer, right? So you could start to make it work, but by the time you put it in retail and retailers are like, you know, 5,000 stores want this, we need, you know, we're projecting 250,000 pieces yeah, and you've got to build that over time, you know, but we need a good chunk of it up front to fill the shelves, thing they're called Presmin. And, you know, if you don't sell it, guess what? All comes back. I was going to say, at that point, weren't things still coming back from those big, big box retailers? Generally. Also taking a much larger cut than people are getting these. Some retailers will work with you. I can't name names, but like uh, some will work with you and help you through the process through markdowns and things like that. Others are straight up like, no, it's fucking Yeah, here's yours. So then it comes back and you're like, all right, what the hell do we do with this? We either sell it to another retail. So it became like 
you know, inventory management, planning, marketing, retail was sort of just like, you know, for hundreds of different products and we're still making more shit. Yeah. Yeah. It just sort of became hard for it to, yeah, you sort of need, you know, most of the products to work, I think, but that, that's not what it taught me. Like it was, yes, quirky didn't work, but I learned actually the other side of it. I learned how to build a culture. Yeah. Mm. I learned how to storytell. Okay. I learned how to build momentum with something off an idea that maybe I hadn't had before. That were my learnings from that. And a company had so much heart because we had such a phenomenal leader in Ben, good management team, and a great group of, you know, people that like work their fucking ass off for this place. Like every Thursday night we'd have product evaluation where we'd look at the top ten voted ideas of the week and the entire company is sitting there evaluating these things at eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole company. Yeah. Four, five hundred people. Because they loved it. They loved it. Yeah. They didn't, you know, yeah, they had other shit going on. Quirky was their life, you know, and it was such a good thing to watch and be a, a part of because there was, it was, shit was happening. See, that's why I liked, that's why I asked about the lesson because it's, it's such a good idea. But I was like, how are those good things like that sustainable? And I feel like those things, those companies come in and they come out, but they, what they do is they offer exactly what you just said. Like they show you how to make culture in another company. Right. The thing I think is, I've learned this my whole career, which is if you spend all the time trying to put together an answer every question of a business, you'll mm-hmm. never fucking start it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to build something that's completely new, guess what? There's no playbook for it. No. Mm. You can't like follow what everyone else is doing. You got to do new shit. Right. And yeah, you might fucking fail. You probably will fail. Yeah. But at the same point, it's like, at least you fucking tried. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I just admired the hell out of Ben for, which is like, he didn't follow any rule books. He didn't follow any of the same, you know, shit that every other company had, had done. He sort of done it on his own terms and had all the people behind him yeah. to actually see that through and see if it worked. And so, you know, I, I really admired that. Was there a certain thing that Quirky did? Because building culture is really hard sometimes. Like, I mean, not building cu- culture is there, but finding the people that get your culture and everything. Was there something that Quirky did in the process that kind of attracted the people? Or was it just the mission? Definitely the mission was was tight. Yeah. yeah the mission was very clear. And we never steered away from that ever. There was We never went down a path that like went away from what the ultimate goal was of the company, which I really, again, really liked and people really liked. It was, now I know, is momentum. Yeah. Momentum, people want to be around momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Coming into something that's sort of uh, slow, steady, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of on the the path. Yeah, there's people that are attracted to that, but then there's people who are excited about all of this. Yeah. And that's going to bring in probably, for the most part, a very different type of person. Yeah. And when you put all those people in a room who are also sold on the mission, you know, really incredible things could happen. I saw shit that got done in you know, product development that was getting done in 30, 60 days. Yeah. Unheard of shit. Right. Complex product design and engineering that was like, yeah, know, that's crazy. Like, but you had the power of the community helping you along the way. It should be blue. It should curve this way. It should do this. It should do that. So I had a lot of fun. It was awesome. I mean, getting to sort of watch that and have a different perspective. Yeah. And being sort of the front sort of lead of sales. Yeah, my job was retail, so I led the sales team. Mm-hmm. My job was to get all the products in the retailers. Yeah. And because Quirky was so fun, mm-hmm. we got to like do yeah. some really cool shit. So like we would try and get the attention of buyers all the time. Yeah. And yeah, we'd just done this deal with Home Depot and uh, we found out that all the Home Depot executive team were going to be playing touch football outside of their office in Atlanta. So we rented a small plane 
and flew around with this massive sign that said quirky, like basically the entire day. <laughs> we must have had like 50 complaints, like from you know, people and cops are calling us being like, you know, it's, it's a noise complaint and stuff like that. Oh, we... the NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, my most famous story. So like the way this sort of ties to what I did with the stable was like, we'd work with brokers every now and then. Yeah. Mostly we'd work direct, but we had brokers and there was a couple of good ones and there were a couple that were shit. Yeah. Right. Most actually most that were shit. They didn't really do that much work. They had relationships with the buyer. They didn't want to like push the envelope because they had all these other businesses that they're trying to, you know, manage as well. So we were selling this ice scraper and you might've heard the story, but like, yeah, we, we had this ice scraper that was like pretty badass that Quirky had developed, uh-huh. uh, which, you know, being living in Minnesota, right? You're like, yeah. so I'd sort of moved back by then just commuting. So what made it so badass then? It was like, you know, it would extend out like super long. So uh-huh. you didn't have to go to either side. And yeah. like the, it was like, it looked like this on the side, but it, I don't know, it just looked, it had like the. So for the audience, he's interlacing his finger. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. it's totally fine. Um, yeah, sorry. Interlacing my fingers. So it was like the squeegee part on one end. Yeah. And then the scraper on the other yep. side. So you just like flip it and turn it and extend it. And it would just, it was sort of a, a bulkyish item that just like a little brush. Right. And it just would get the ice off like so really it's, effectively. It's funny because these ice scrapers are available, available now, but I remember... Well, I mean, even up until like a few years ago, this was not a thing. Yeah, no doubt. And they sold ice scrapers. Obviously, you know, Home Depot sells them, Target sells them. Right? They're like five bucks or whatever like that. And they fall apart yeah. after like two, you get, two like, goes. This... You get a too hard of an ice. And then all of a sudden it's like, I cannot take Cracks. this. Yeah, yeah, done. Yeah. So yeah, we found the ice scraper buyer at QVC and we knew that they sold you know, a lot of ice scrapers and they're always looking for innovation. So we're like, fuck it, let's send them this ice scraper. And the broker calls me back. He's like, oh, hey, they're not interested in the ice scraper. Sorry. And I'm like, what do you mean? Did they see it? And they're like, no, we just sent the PDF sales sheet. And I'm like, oh, fucking great job. <laughs> yeah, good job. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Like, like an A plus yeah. for you. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, fuck that. We're going to take it to the next level. Let's get this buyer's attention. So I'm sitting there with the head of marketing, Brett Kovacs, absolute legend. And he and I sat together. We said, all right, let's come up with an idea to get this attention. So he's like, well, what if we were to put something in a block of ice and then use the ice scraper to get it out? So we end up deciding, let's get a bottle of Maker's Mark. So we went like went around the corner to the liquor store on 38th and 11th, bought a bottle of Maker's Mark, and then we brought it to the office and we like just found the internet and like found some fucking company in New Jersey that does like dry, like a dry, uh, ice cubes and they freeze anything. So we put in a 300 pound block of ice and then we're like, how do we get it from Jersey to Westchester, Pennsylvania? And we shipped it over there and somehow figured it out. I think we couriered it and it got delivered to the buyer's desk Right. And uh, pretty much like your floor, it's been dripping everywhere because she was not there on the Friday. So she comes in Monday and her floor's like soaked. And she opened it up with the ice scraper and said like, happy hour begins in a few hours. You know, you better get scraping. So word gets around QVC, I guess, that like everybody's like (laughs) trying to get this bottle of Maker's Mark out of there and it became the thing. I didn't know this was happening, right? But I'm to be there like this Thursday to meet yeah. a bunch of buyers and I actually sent an email to this woman and I was like, hey, like, I want to talk to you about this ice scraper. I, I sent you a sample with a smiley face. So I wrote, <laughs> like, and I hear that she's like a pretty tough buyer, right? Uh-huh. Like she's seen the fucking, she's seen it all. Yeah, she's yeah. seen it all. Of course. And uh, so I'm sitting in like one of the vendor rooms at QBC. I'm fucking shitting myself because I'm like, she is going to come in and punch me in the face. Yeah, 100%. And she walks in and she's she just fucking stops me and she goes, just before you say anything, that was the fucking coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I was like, she, I was like, my fucking heart dropped. 
<laughs> She's like, everyone at the QVC was trying to get that that bottle of Maker's Mark out the ice cream. The CEO was there. I've never had that much time with him. Like, we are bringing this thing in. Yeah. That was awesome. And we went on to sell like, you know, probably nearly a million bucks worth of those ice scrapers, all from like, I don't know, it was 700 bucks of money yeah. and a bit of fucking thought. Yes. So I fired that broker and <laughs> we took it direct. <laughs> and, you know, that we did lots of stuff like that. One, because it was fun. We were quirky. We were different. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we could get away with it. And, you know, we had really innovative products. So we knew that like something like that on the QVC would work. So it was it was fun. And that started giving me the idea for the stable, which was there's this whole broker space out there that might need a reinvention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of those experiences and lots of talk over the years with people in the industry being like, where's the broker business going? Like, where's like, there's tons of reps. In every market, Minneapolis has got the reps, rep groups, Bentonville, you know, they all seem to say the same thing. They all say they work for the retailer, which is sort of odd because the brands pay them. Where's this business going? And no one really had an answer. So it just intrigued me for a few years. Yeah. I'm like, I wonder if I could do that better, you know, by taking the same learnings of Quirky of A, giving a shit. Uh-huh. pushing for the brands. Right. And yeah, you're going to maintain relationships with the retailers. You need to know what the hell they want and do. So you need to be excellent there, but you need to be more brand centric because I think the world of retail is going to change. Yeah. And I think it's, this is 2014, 2015. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to be just about walking into Target and Walmart, yeah. right? Amazon's going to continue to take over the world. Let's face it. Yeah. Shopify and D2C is going to be an important strategy mm-hmm. because more people are going to shift to online. And I have a feeling that like Instagram and Facebook might start selling shit yeah. in the future. Mm-hmm. So in 10 years from now, how the fuck are we going to shop as consumers? How yeah. are we going to learn about products? Right. That's all going to change. So that was like on my mind for like legit, like two years, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure out and solve what the hell that that meant for an agency. And I was on a plane once and I actually just sat there and just put like shop is on a spreadsheet because I'm an Excel guy. Yeah. I wrote shop at the top and then underneath I had retail, D2C, social, content, media. Yeah. That were the five headlines. Yeah. And I looked at it, I, I like sat there just staring at it for two hours and I was like, that's a very different agency from a broker yeah. right, who works purely for Target and they, sure. they know the shit backwards so they know how to sell stuff there they yeah. know how to scale it but brands are going to want more in the future <laughs> and yeah. they're going to want an agency who understands commerce and knows how to scale across all of these different channels yeah what if I was to build an agency like that yeah so came home and you know God bless my wife, Kate, because, <laughs> you know. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> she was, honestly, she was like the one that like pushed it and said like, you know, this is, you know, uh, I'd done five years at Quirky. Quirky's still going at this point. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I could not stop thinking about yeah. this like agency. Yeah. And I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I felt it was my time. I was like, you know, I've been in the mm-hmm. country now for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Yeah. They're not kicking me out. Well, like, yeah. So like, I know a lot of people have got a really good relationship with Ben. So I went to Ben and said like, hey, I'm like, I'm going to leave. I want to start this agency. And he's like, stick around for a little bit, you know, and I'll help you think through, you know, how to build it and I'll help you out, which was so amazing. And, you know, Kate was sort of in a position herself at working for a distribution company that she was looking for something new. So we sort of said, well, let's do, well, we'll do this together. So we sat on the couch at our house yeah. in St. Louis Park. We bought a house by that point. And we said, all right, let's, let's take this and like whiteboard it and like figure out how it yeah. could be. 
let's start with being excellent in the broker space. That's the area we want to disrupt the most. So let's be excellent and better than everyone else there. Mm -hmm. And once we've built the relationships with those brands, then we can start expanding our services to all these other areas and start to become more strategic with our clients. That was the start of the stable. And it was literally like, you know, a couple whiteboard sessions. Mm -hmm at home and finally felt it was time to do it. And, you know, you talk to other entrepreneurs in town. Jackie Berglund's one of my favorite, runs yeah. Finnegan's. And I was having drinks with her once at the Minneapolis club. And she's like, why don't you fucking just go do this? And she was one she's of like, about- like, I'm tired of actually hearing you talk yeah, about she this. She was one yeah. of about eight people. So thanks, yeah. Jackie. One of about eight people in town is like, you, I can see it in your eyes. You want to go do this and yeah. you want to build something different. And uh, yeah, that, that was that was it. That tipped me over the edge. It was like, all right, it's time to go. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm running around town trying to figure out, all right, well, if I'm going to do this right, I I can't just, I can't start like I started Logic. I have to, I need something to kickstart it initially. Mm -hmm. I need a little bit of capital and I've got some equity at Quirky mm. and, but I need a little bit more. Yeah. I've got some cash, not much, Yeah, but I need, I need some more money because what I want to do is bring in a couple people off the bat straight away who are experts. I went through this whole quick journey of being like, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Yeah. yeah. And once you've had that lesson, yeah, it's it's easier to start building around you and start building a company at scale. Because if you start trying to do everything by yourself, I'm going to be back like I was mm -hmm. consultant land. Right. Right. Just working with clients and I'm going to be a one person show yeah. and I'm never going to achieve this business plan. Totally. Because I'm just on my own. I'm going to be running in the fucking hamster wheel like right. nonstop. So what did you decide was your zone of genius and what did you hire out then? Actually, was like, you know, I don't know, you know details aren't always my thing. So if I'm going to be managing clients, I better be bringing in someone who is amazing at uh, representing brands. Yeah. From a sales and strategy perspective, uh -huh. I need operations help because God knows how. Like, <laughs> that's that is not my forte. I feel you uh, there so well. And, yes. And so, you know, I was fortunate at that point. So Target just did a big layoff and a lot of people were let go that were good, just got promoted to the wrong positions. Yes. And so that was happening at that time. And I was like, well, I need a, I need a rep. I need an operations person. I've got Kate who is with me as my partner and she's going to help run both sales and ops. But, you know, we need, a, you know, we need more than that. Yeah. And so that, that sort of helped me sort of input numbers into what salaries could be yeah. and like, what's the first six to 12 months going to look like? How much money do I need? Yeah. And it was a higher amount than I thought because <laughs> <laughs> people aren't cheap, right? Good people aren't cheap, but I need good people right off the bat. If not, like I'm going to have shitty clients yeah. and like, mm -hmm. you know, I want, I want good clients that I can build from mm -hmm. over time. So I uh, was sitting in the Minneapolis club one day because I was a member there when I worked for Quirky because Quirky was in New York. I was here. I didn't want to work from home. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be close to Target mm -hmm. and didn't want to get an office. So I just like became a member there for like 500 bucks a month. And I just sit in like their little like office yeah. spots that they've got there. One day, for some reason, I decided to sit in the, the library. So I'm sitting in the library. I was like the only guy wearing jeans there, by the way. Yeah. And this other young guy walks in and he's with the event planner talking about a party he's throwing. He's like, I want a bar over here, a bar over there. I want, you know, a dance floor to be here. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Like, he's like, one, he's young. Don't see that here that often. So I, I like went up and said hi, which I like never do. And actually became good friends. I went to his event and you know, this is like a year before. And I'm like, I want to talk to you about this business idea called The Stable. And I just want to like have you look at it. Am I crazy? Should I be doing this? He was running a small hedge fund at the time. And he's like, so you're talking about going on Nicolette Mall, completely blowing up the rep space and transforming it into this new style of agency. I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm fucking in. Yeah. He's like, I know nothing about this business, yeah. <laughs> but it sounds fun. So 
he helped get the rest of the money together. My, obviously, my quirky equity went to zero. No, that wasn't fun. So we went all in and we started the company June 1, 2015. And we started it actually at the Minneapolis club in one of their small conference rooms. So we just went up to the desk and we're like, can we rent this room for a month? That fucking one month became eight months. But it was just a conference table. It was seven of us, I think. A couple reps, a couple folks in ops and Nick and I and Kate. Yeah, we just started calling brands being like, we are building the next generation commerce agency which we didn't call commerce agency then, we were a retail sales agency. And we're going to go push to have your story told at retail. And we were primarily targeting both D2C brands and sort of IoT brands. So brands that we like cared about. I think that if, you, if you're representing someone as a client, the more you care for it, the more success it's, they're, they're going to have. So, you know, that first six months, we, we signed like 20, 30 clients. And one of them was Ring, which oh, yeah. was the doorbell. Yeah. And one of them was Parrot Drones, which was the happened to be the front cover of Black Friday in 2015. And they were our client. I'm even thinking about Ring. Ring back in 2015 was nothing. Yeah. It was like doorbot and then it became Ring. Yeah. yeah. Better name. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, we were, we were signing brands, right? And our job was to help them get into Target, help them manage the process, help them scale it and help them grow their business. And, you know, I was fortunate that I brought in some really good people who knew what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, we sat up there day one and we said, we want to build a company that has no playbook, just like Quirky. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of looking around the industry being like, we see what, we sort of understand what everyone else is doing. Let's build something different. Let's build a culture that's different. Let's build an energy that's, that's different. Let's have no hierarchy. Yeah. Let's like build open plan. I'm sitting with you guys and let's build this fucking thing. This is a team. Yep. You're like literally having your Minneapolis Mighty Ducks moment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I feel like a Charlie Conway. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was it was awesome. Yeah, we actually, we caused a lot of disruption in that first six months from the fucking Minneapolis club. Oh, I'm sure. And, yeah. You know, we we couldn't meet in offices with our clients because we didn't have offices. So we'd be like, oh, we'll just meet at the coffee shop around the street from yeah. Target. I'll meet you where it's convenient for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're signing all these great emerging, like now, rock star brands yeah. who were nothing back then. And we were jumping on planes and flying to Seattle, San Francisco, and New York and just go, uh, we'd go to all the um, sort of venture studios and uh, accelerators and we'd just go and meet all these brands and like pitch our services and say like we'll help you and like let's work together and and you know not all of them work out because Mm -hmm. you know you're still building the business and you can't pick every every good brand but every now and then you'd get some pretty amazing brands um and then you'd fly home that night so you just go do day trips and you fly the red eye home Yep. And you just hustled and hustled and hustled and outwork and outwork and outwork. Work, yeah. And all of a sudden we started getting a name for ourselves and we're like, oh, fuck, let's keep, let's keep doubling down on this. Uh, competitors don't seem that happy with us right now because like we seem to be getting some pretty good brands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're making a lot of noise for someone who's really small. Yeah. And one of the funny things we did is we, everyone drinks at the local, right? Yeah. On Nicolette Mall. So I'm in there one day and I go to the bathroom and I look at the wall and I see all the billboards in the bathrooms. I'm like, I should buy all the billboards in the bathrooms yeah. just to say that we're here. 100%. So it was like the first week, I think, of the company and it was four billboards across four urinals and it said, do cool shit, the stable. And and we bought that and it was like, everyone's texting. It's like, we just saw your fucking thing. That's so, so funny. And it just got people talking. Oh, yeah. You know? And they became like your marketing 
in a sense, right? It's because like right. the more you start showing up, the better it is. And we took down those billboards for about a year after that. And so we changed them every single month and just like poke fun or do whatever. And yeah, it was it was amazing. So we'd try all these like guerrilla marketing activities it. just yeah. to build our brand and awareness. And, you know, so like the Best Buy event would be in town where every big vendor would come in to see like Elton John perform and like this big charity event. Super impressive. Yeah. It's like so expensive to sit at one of those tables and we couldn't afford that with like yeah. a startup. Yeah. You know, so if we did, it was like two people standing at the back. We couldn't even get a seat. <laughs> so the next year we're like, well, we're going to make a splash here, right? So like we're walking outside and we're seeing all these pedicabs and we're like, bingo, that's what we're going to do. So the next year we rented every pedicab in town. We branded everyone, all the pedicabs under the stable branding. We put all the drivers in stable t-shirts and we gave everyone free rides to Brits. <sighs> Right? Yeah. And it was $2,500. Nothing. Versus, you know, know, whatever it costs for a table, a lot more than that. Yeah. Right. And it's all everybody talked about was the fact that they didn't have to walk in, you know, the cold to Brits that night to go to the after party. So we just had a lot of fun, like, yes, being excellent at what we did. And that that was the, you had to be good. You you can't just be flashy, right? Right. You need to have some fucking substance. Right. And we were fortunate. Our team was just really rock solid. They they helped a ton of brands be successful. And, you know, because of that, we were we could add some flair on top yeah. of that to help build our build our name. So these guerrilla marketing tech like techniques, are they primarily coming from you or is it your team at this time? Or because they're creative. They, yeah. I mean, you know, it, definitely team effort. Yeah. You know, we I mean the early days was like us sitting around table being like, all right, everyone, we could have come up with an idea <laughs> for what our toilet ads are gonna say. Uh-huh. Or yeah, what should we do for this or what should we yeah. do for that? Yeah, you know, I drive a, a ton of that in terms of wanting to do something, but yeah, it, you know, if they're just Chad's ideas. Yeah. It's like funny for me, but right. you need others to participate in the process. And I think that's what actually helped build the process So, and the culture, right? The right. company is that everybody got to be involved in that stuff outside of just their core day to day. I mean, I think what I really hear out of this is like first time entrepreneurs like really focus on product and like second time entrepreneurs really focus on distribution. And at that point in time, you were like, I just need to get distribution down as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Like that's what I'm seeing. You're like my first business, I really focused on the product. And the second time I'm like, I'm just going to blast you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was super fun. You know, we, the money that we put in the company to start, yeah. we thought would last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It did not. Yeah. About a year, about a year later, <laughs> we're like, oh, fuck it. God, this is like, you know, because, you know, now we're upgrading to an office. We're on Nicolette Mall. Yeah. So we're above Barrio and it was Ling and Louise at the yeah. time. Okay. We got 5,000 square feet, which feels massive. Yeah. Massive, right? To have that much space. There's only like nine of us. We've got all these great brands. And every time we sign a brand, right, we're signing. Uh, like Smarty Pants or Calafia Farms mm-hmm. or whatever, the, you know, Parrot, whatever. you know, by the time you get something going at retail, it could be a year from now. Uh-huh. Then I get paid mm, 60, 90 days after the client gets paid. So I'm on like net 100 and God knows what, right? So all of a sudden the bank account's like fucking drying up. Yeah. And we're like, well, we're getting all this growth. Like, how are we going to keep, yeah. it, keep it going, you know? And so, yeah, there were days where, I mean, pff, shit, not days, months where Monday would come around. And we're like, we got payroll on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Like payroll at that point's 30 grand. Yeah. Maybe less. I don't remember. Uh, we got eight grand in the bank. Right. Yeah. And well, so, but our AR is huge. So we're going to be like, call every client and give them a discount, do whatever we can to get cash in the door. Yeah. yeah. And if there's a shortfall, then Chad and Nick and Kate, you know, are, are writing the check for the difference. Mm-hmm. We did that dance for about a year. Wow. I'll put hair in your chest. It did, yeah. I actually think I would say the latter. That's how going to lose hair. Can we just be clear? Like, Obama before I went into hair, the presidency you know? <laughs> and, like, what, afterwards? Like, yeah. Yeah. It was, 
It was tough. Did you ever at a point then be like, I want to go for another funding round or anything? Or you were just like, I want to keep this as bootstrapped as possible. Like, I mean, you had funding, but, you know. Uh, yeah, but it was like, it was self-funding. Yeah. Uh, so by 2017, we're like, all right, listen, we gotta, we have a problem. We have the the business is growing. Yeah. Client, the amount of clients coming on board is expanding. Mm-hmm. We need more people to support the brands we're yeah. doing. We want to get to Amazon, so we want to open Seattle. Mm-hmm. We've got a cash flow problem. Yeah. You know, at that point, like we've got a bank line that's like 250 grand that's fully drawn. My house is on the line, got no money and not paying myself. Yeah. And right. whatever money I've got left, I'm drawing all my 401k. Yeah. All of it, which you have to pay tax on. 100%. Yeah. All right. Not fun. Fuck it. Mark Barco at Baker Tilly pulled his hair out, being like, what are you doing? But you're but, like, I believe in this. Yeah, that's trust right. Trust me. Just trust me. The business me. is growing. Like, revenue's growing. Right. Culture's growing. So, you know, we're making making a difference. And we decided to do a funding round and went out to 38 VCs because we thought, you know, let's just go do that. And 36 said no. And finally, one said yes. And it was a family office out of uh, Fargo, North Dakota. They gave us four million bucks, dude. And that four million was a fundraising round, which then expanded the company and, like, changed the game. We opened Seattle and began an assault on helping brands at Amazon. We op- mm. uh, we went from 16 employees to 32 employees, like within the space of two months. Mm. Uh, we fixed our cash flow issues. We paid our debt off. Nick and I started getting paid. And we just went on this tear of amazing clients uh, that started signing with the business. Yeah. And the whole thesis then was like, you know, if you're signing one of these brands to help them at Target, they might need help at Amazon. So let's expand our services, get our Seattle team. And instead of just like going wider with as many clients, let's say focus with the ones we have and let's help them more strategically and we can generate more revenue from that one client versus Mm -hmm. versus whatnot. Uh, So yeah, open Seattle and we were there, you know, every two weeks for about a year and a half. We started in a WeWork and then we opened uh, in Capitol Hill. And, you know, then we started hiring some marketing talent here because social and marketing and content so we had uh video creative director uh social selling started talking to clients about like how to think about instagram shopping Mm -hmm. and all of it ties together right like if you're a brand you make like you know like yourself Andrew, like you're making a product and you want to go omni-channel you need a d2c strategy you need amazon strategy you need a physical story uh we were now able to help with that and up until the end of 2019 we grew to about 65 people and yeah, you know, that four million helped you know get us to that that point. Yeah. And I think probably actually could have lasted a lot longer right. after that because revenue we started scale. Twenty twenty hit, and it's March. Yeah, everyone remembers. About nine months prior to that, Nick and I said we got to take the next step in the journey, and you know let's start looking at additional capabilities to fill out the purpose of the business plan. Right. Yeah. Um, so we uh, Walmart needs to be in our yeah in our playbook in our stable. Sorry. And we, you can't just walk into Bentonville and yeah. set up a sign and be like, I'm here. Some people could do it. We, we felt like we didn't have time. Mm-hmm. So we needed to move quicker. So let's go, let's go acquire a company in, in Bentonville. So we spent nine months sourcing uh, an opportunity to buy a company there. And then we're like, well, how are we going to fund it? We don't know yet. Do we go to our existing investors? Do we take you know, off the balance sheet? How are we going to do this? And we got in touch with uh, a few private equity groups. Mm-hmm. And one in particular, GCP, took a liking to the business. And we ended up doing a private equity deal in March of 2020, and uh, which was nuts. Uh, I, I could do a two-hour story on this. Yeah. <laughs> and we bought we bought a company down Bentonville called Creative Sales and Marketing. That gave us 35 people overnight at Bentonville. Oh wow! And we began to integrate that business into the stable. All of a sudden, we could start cross-sharing clients across all of the different areas between Seattle, Minneapolis, and, and Bentonville. And we started to get a ton of success, and it was scaling. And you know, just starting to become more of the company that we set out to build. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, because it was 2020, 
we're sitting there being like, all right, everyone's sitting on their fucking hands because what's going to happen next week? Yeah. Are we back next week? Are we not? Like, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Every three months. In the world. A life-changing, <laughs> like, yeah. it would cha- like the entire world would change in three months. Right. So we're like, all right, let's just, let's double down. Let's, yeah. let's not sit on our hands. Yeah. So we went on an acquisition spree after that. We bought two more companies before the end of 2020. We bought a company called Rich Context, also out of Bentonville, that was an ad tech platform. So that, that was sort of like our media play. Yeah. It helped brands who were advertising on, you know, social mm-hmm. tie in their retail partners. So mm. fulfilled by retailer, but add through brand direct and Mm -hmm. uh, we could tap into real-time inventories so if the brand had no inventory in florida we'll stop advertising in florida (laughs) right so we'd save them money on their ad spend and those brands we love that yeah that's right you know (laughs) yeah yeah spray and pray isn't really the uh, (laughs) strategy yeah. yeah and then we bought our largest competitor here in minneapolis called jacobs marketing which was traditionally a target broker who's taking a playbook from you using his name and then said media group here yeah, jacobs yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right exactly <laughs> uh so by the end of 2020 we were just over 100 people uh no actually more than that i was like 100 no shit it was it was like 200 people yeah we were 200 people by the end of 2020 and we moved offices into jacobs office because i had, a, had an issue because we only had 5,000 square feet and 50 people <laughs> fucking hate me so i'm like don't worry about it and then COVID came along wow thank god like now i don't have to get an office yeah so then jacobs had twenty five thousand square feet so that was nice to fix that problem and you know we all of a sudden we became one of the strongest and largest broker space at target we had a walmart play we had an amazon play we had a social and marketing team and we had a media business to private equity was you know happy and supportive they like all good we've done three acquisitions in a year which is unheard of mostly and we just kept integrating those businesses getting them all under the stable we didn't treat it like a holding company. It was one company, one mission, one org structure. And then a few more opportunities came up after that, after summer of 21. One was another broker down in Walmart called Retail Firm. So we acquired them, merged them together with our Walmart business down there. And then the only piece that was missing in our our sheet was direct to consumer. Uh We had content, we had media, we could build websites, but we were certainly not a player. Yeah. So we started asking our brands, like, where does everyone go to build their their, their brands? They're like, well, we got this company called BVA. I'm like, yeah, I know BVA, I've known it for 10 years, but they already sold their business. So I can't can't buy them. Mm-hmm. Who else? They're like they're another company out of LA called Zayna. They're really good at what they do as well. So I started building a relationship with Matt Zayna. And uh, fortunately, got him to a position where he was like, yep, yeah, cool. I want to be on this mission with you. Let's go do this thing. See so much cross-connection between yeah. retail and D2C yeah. and client sharing. And if you're going to build on D2C and then move to retail, having that all in one agency is mm-hmm. just like so seamless. It's yeah. so easy for a brand. So we get to sort of LOI stage, start due diligence. Well, fucking guess what happens? We get a call from our PE and they're like, oh, actually, BVA is interested in selling. So we're like, well, we're already down the path of Zayna. <laughs> yeah. So we start meeting the BVA crew and like having connect. Like, Fuck, this is a good company too. Like, and I love BVA. I yeah. think it's such a great agency. Uh-huh. Um, we fucking can't do both. Or can we? Can we? <laughs> so we're down in Bentonville at the 21C having drinks with our private equity guys that come down. It's like, oh, fuck it, guys. I thought about it on the plane. Let's try and do both. I just see what reaction they give. And they're fucking Chad, you are crazy. And Scott Peters, the head of GCP disappeared for about three hours and then next morning we see him at breakfast he comes in and is like yep we can get this done if you want to get this done we can get it done we have to bring in some other banking partners yeah. and we have to go but we got to move fast and we got to do this i was like 
this would make us one of the largest players in Shopify in terms of you know web development and experiences. We've already got one of the largest at Target, one of the largest at Amazon, <laughs> largest at, at Walmart. You know, we're good at what we do there. We need to be a player on the D2C side. Both of them didn't know because like when you're buying companies, you don't, you never, yeah, you know, they always fall apart, right? Yeah. Things can happen. Right. So we sort of went down parallel paths just to sort of understand, learn about them more, and and all of a sudden like fuck, these are really complimentary. Yeah. We should definitely do both. So lo and behold, we were able to get them both done and announce them like within, I think, day of each other internally and then externally to the market as sort of one, like we are buying the number one and the number two Shopify yeah. development shops and we're going to integrate them into the stable and all of a sudden we're 550 people by the end of 2022. So <laughs> basically from 2017, right, to 2022, you've gone from what four people 17 probably 20 30 people yeah from like august onwards but earlier in that year 16 people so basically 2015 when you were at well, like four people yeah yep now i got 500 seven years yeah well like less than seven years yeah. i mean yeah but really like it started in 2020 because you were about 50 people right. and so <laughs> then to 500 and we'll just call it 550 people it's yeah. pretty wild i mean like Max. yeah there's a yeah the acquisition story obviously when you acquire companies you get people yeah but the business organically was growing really fast as well. Yeah. You know, like our stat was not so managing over $4 billion at retail now. Yeah. It's a massive number. Right. Yeah. You know, you're building web experiences on Shopify for Spanx and Everyman Jack and Netflix as client. You know, your client portfolio has just expanded dramatically from these like, you know, single onesie products to now clients you never thought would actually ever be clients. Right. And then you find out Netflix actually wants to get into some physical retail. Okay. Great. We're the partner now. Let's go talk about that. And the business became very much less around just, yeah, we'd still deliver. We would deliver a business every day, right? Whether it's retail, whether it's Amazon, whether it's D2C, we, our job was to, you know, the client had needs, we were to get that done. This now stepped into more of a strategic we're thinking about the clients, thinking about omni-channel retail. Yeah. You guys are now sitting at the table with us. Help us think through how we get there and how we navigate this new world and then go execute it. Perfect acquisition for someone like Accenture. Yeah. So, so when did that all happen? We met them the end of 21. Okay. You know, they'd heard about some of the work we were doing. Yeah. They were obviously interested in commerce themselves. And yeah, then we did the big Shopify acquisitions and that really sort of you know, anyone who wanted to now come into the space had to probably wait another year or two till the next third, fourth player was sort of ready to possibly be sold. And, you know, so we, we just have these casual meetings with them around just like how could we partner together because they work with everybody that's at enterprise level client, mm -hmm. right? Any brand you grew up with, Accenture is, you know, and I got to learn a lot about them. Could we partner together to deliver certain types of work to larger clients. Yeah. And the more we got talking with each other, and I probably said this on maybe another podcast, which was like, when you get two great companies sitting there jamming together, like pretty cool things could happen. Yeah. And that's, that's really what happened with Accenture. There was no intention to sell the business. Like we had just done these last three acquisitions, right. which we're still integrating them, right? right? We're having so much fun. We've just rebranded ourselves. We've got everybody on the boat yeah. and organically the business is growing strong and everyone's fucking happy. You know, this mm -hmm. thing is like momentum, right? It's like right. this thing yeah. is building momentum in the agency space that no one's ever seen before. So like, why sell the business? You know, it doesn't right. make any sense. But the more we started talking with Accenture, the more excited we started to get about the possibilities of how they could help get us there f even faster. Mm -hmm. You want to go international? We got 800,000 employees globally. Oofta. You, you know, you want data? We've got data. Yeah. Right. We've got data. You don't even know that we have data <laughs> yeah. on you. Yeah. How about sitting in the room of the company that, you know, you're selling to 
and helping them shape the strategy and then going to execute it, right? I'm I'm sitting there being like, how fucking cool would that be? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we were certainly we were certainly like we thought we, we knew we had a pretty interesting asset mm-hmm. for sure. And, you know, we didn't want to just sell to anybody. Uh and Accenture was probably like gold standard for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah very different for a original founding broker business to be sold to someone like Accenture. That's not that's not the path, right? Yeah. You go to an advantage or a Costa or one of these guys, but we'd build this true omni-channel agency that serviced, you know, thousand brands from small, medium to some enterprise. Fuck Accenture, that's like that's pretty cool. And we just got to know them and like them, and they decided that they wanted, you know, offer to buy the business, and uh, you know, went down the process. And what I loved about them was that they fucking did everything they said. So even down to, hey, we're going to send you an LOI at five p.m. Fucking came at five p.m. Not five oh one. Not five oh two. Not four fifty eight. Came at fucking five o'clock, dude. And I was like, these are the people I want to work with. Yeah, hundred you know, percent. Everybody that does what they say is who yeah. I want to work. Because I've worked with people over the last twenty years that fucking bullshit you around and yeah. like, right. you know, oh, we're going to do this and that, and they fucking don't deliver. So to have a company of that standard, one, be interested in the business, two, do what they say. I'm like, yes, yes, and yes. So I made a very easy decision, but I had to think about everybody else. You know, this wasn't just me anymore. Right. This was my business partner, you know, wife, my employees, my leadership, my clients. What I'd never put myself in what's better for Chad ever. Because if I did, I would have built the stable very differently. Right. I wouldn't have raised money. I would have just like started right. my own and fucking pulled as much cash as I could have to fucking done whatever. But that's not who I am. Right. I'm about the journey. Mm-hmm. And I'm about trying to tell a more comprehensive story and try to do something that no one's done before. Um which is what I think the staple did. And, you know, I'm only going to do a deal if this benefits everybody that's involved. And I knew that Accenture would be that that outcome. Yeah. Which made the decision super easy. And, yeah, it was a fucking blast. <laughs> and, then, you know, it's uh, August last year. And you're like, fuck, what the hell just happened? Yeah. You know, the last seven years, like, you've gone, yeah, like from scrappy startup in the Minneapolis club to selling your company a global leader. You know, and now you're the cornerstone of their commerce strategy globally. You know, how does that happen? But it felt very right, and and that that that's what made the process really easy for us. It was never we never started the business to sell. We never we never took it to market to sell. Mm-hmm. It just things happen for a reason, and you know, I'm a big believer in that. And if it feels right, and again, going back to when I started out, I'm going, I'm going by my gut, and you know, this is this is where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Did you have a mentor with you at the time? Because A, you've never acquired businesses before. So going from like acquisition and then obviously to going then to evaluation to be able to sell, like, was there somebody that kind of advised you along the way or was that just you shooting from the hip? Um, we had, a, you know, private equity was helpful. Yeah. They they were excellent. You know, uh, James Peter, uh, James uh, Callahan, Scott Peters were, were brilliant. You know, partners for us, uh, our board was, was good. But my leadership was really tight. You know, mm-hmm. like the seven people I said started in the Minneapolis club, mm-hmm. they're all still there today. Yeah. You know? Okay. And, you know, they're like, they become family, right? Yeah. And they know when you're making a dumb fucking mistake. Right. They're going to tell you, <laughs> right? They're like your kids. Yeah. You know, so, mm, Dad, that's pretty dumb. Um, which, believe me, happened a lot over those seven years. Sure. But, um, so, no, I had no coach. Yeah. I had no one that I would check in with every, you know, month or so to mm-hmm. see Am I making the right decisions? It was a lot of internal thinking and yeah. doing and trying, and then a lot of yeah you know, communication with partners, leadership, and board uh, and clients. Right to mm-hmm. 
is this right for for everybody? But fuck, I'd never done private equity in my yeah. life. You know, I had to understand and build that game from, from yeah. scratch. You know, I didn't know how to raise that kind of money. Yeah. You know, and you know when you're you know in negotiation trying to raise you know significant amounts of capital, be able to achieve the goal of what you set. Yeah. And you stand there and you're in you know, fifth and fifty fifth in New York on the top floor of what bank? Uh huh. You're like, I'm so fucking far from Woodville Park. I'm so far from home. Yeah. Uh, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> uh-huh. And how did this happen? Um, that didn't happen when I was doing the stable. It's only happening now. I'm looking back being like, oh, fucking hell, that was it. What a ride. What a ride. Yeah, I didn't. At that point, it just felt right. And yeah. I think when you're building a business, you know, if, yeah, you have shit days. That's just part of it. Like, Everyone has shit days no matter what. And it's hard to, it's hard. Yeah. Period. The end of story. You got to, you know, you got to push through that and get over it. And, but then you have the good days. Yeah. And you're like, this just feels right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I never took the time to look back and be like, oh, look what we've done. Look what we're doing. It was just momentum. Keep building momentum. Keep making it make sense. Bring in good people, have good people around you and go execute and go do. So now going from 17 year old Chad to now, basically scaling, 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 getting to this place where you've like reached kind of this like this summit in a way it seems like. What's next? What's the next goal for you? I um I don't do goals. I'm I'm about lists. I do I do one to two weeks out. Okay. I never set five, ten year goals because you know, I learned that pretty early on actually. I was like, you know, if I ten years is a long time. You know, five years even one year is a long time and a lot of shit can happen. Yeah. And I want to be the small boat that's sort of buzzing around mm-hmm. and, and being able to turn and make decisions quickly and easy. And you can't do that with long-term goals. So I don't look and say, oh, shit, by 50, I need to have done this. Like, I just, I don't look at that. I look at everything in a one to two weeks. What do I got to get done this week? What do I get done in two weeks? And if I can achieve all of those things, then I'm making progress on, you know, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So now I'm actually at the point, I, I've been talking to a lot of friends about this, which is like, yeah, you, you've done something quite big now and you know tick the boxes of a few things that you know you wanted to achieve my whole thing now is like how do i get back to 17 year old chad yeah like i want it because i see like a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs i notice sometimes and, and you learn you meet them over the years you know great people have had had a success then when did their second third business complete failures you know and they're like well i self-funded it i did it all myself made a little bit of cash and now i never want to do that i want to go back to like scrappy building how you know something for yeah uh, cheap and not just like taking money and putting it into a dumb idea that I have, which, by the way, I've got a lot of dumb ideas, right? right? <laughs> and if I was to fund all them, I'd be fucking bankrupt, right? 100%. So like, I'm actually just trying to get back to the chat of 17. Curious. Being like on the, on the come up. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, because I think that's what's, you know, when you're, when you're starting out, you're more hungrier. Yeah. There's right. more ambition in the world's your oyster. Yeah. I want to get back there. And so, you know, I'm still at Accenture and I'm loving the work we're doing there. We're continuing to grow. The clients are just like unbelievable who we're working with now, like clients I didn't even know would ever be clients or clients now and having a blast, you know, but I'm mentoring lots of people right now, you know, been on the phone today three or four times with different companies and founders who are friends or colleagues and giving them advice on like how to do that. I don't ask for anything in return. You know, I'm not a quick buck guy. Like I'm... I love business. I love entrepreneurship and I want to help people the same way some people helped me and gave me my shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always there for a phone call for anyone who's fucking struggling and being like, how the hell do I get out of this mess? I want to be there the next night and helping them figure it out how to how to do it. Yeah. Because uh, I just love it. Yeah. 
Well, don't worry, Chad. I'll be calling you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be yeah. here tomorrow. <laughs> I've got many things. Well, Chad, uh, first off, you have won the official title of our longest podcast. Oh, thanks. Uh, yes. Also, you brought us wine, which I really greatly oh, appreciate. Yeah, it's it's yeah. 430. Fuck. I mean, I was like, I, I, was, like, I, was, like, I was just like, I know. So, but thank you so much for being on the World's Okayest Entrepreneur. You're thanks for having me. In true embodiment. And don't worry, you're going to have to come back. So, you, right. yeah. Uh, Sounds good. We have so many more questions. I have so, so many more questions. So many more. So bad. Yeah. I also I also have to go pick up we do, kids. We do so have we're some just wine. gonna figure this out. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. No, appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. You've made it this far. It means you've gotten through the last two and a half hours of this podcast. This was one of our longest podcasts. Thank you for sticking around. Also, I kind of like love drinking during the podcast and also don't love drinking during the podcast because I'm not looking forward to having to wrap all of these wires and put away all this gear while being slightly buzzed if i'm being honest totally and also having to like go to the bathroom halfway through the entire thing just <laughs> yeah, holding it yeah what you're learning all is that this was a first for us and we're not sure if we're bullish or bearish on this whole idea of drinking and podcasts which was one of our actually original ideas for a podcast so i thought it was fun i would definitely do it again yeah um but i hope you loved um everything that you learned about chad from this episode i think he's just truly like the true like embodiment of an okay entrepreneur and just like figuring it out as you go and I think it's also just like that tenacity of keeping going and not letting go. Like um, for the fact for Chad to build that business over that course and time period, it, it just was insane. I mean, in like acquiring three businesses in a year, that's insane. Right. Like, the fearlessness that's needed to do that is something I really look up to. I know, I'm not now like uh, several people have been on the podcast that have acquired businesses. And now I'm at this point now where I'm like, I want to acquire a business. I know. We always talk about Sanchez quite I know and I'm like we do it I know and now I'm like maybe I'm just gonna figure it out maybe I'm just gonna do right that and I'm gonna be like I'm going to acquire a business but yeah um I hope you all loved it and just found so much information value out of it like we did that's like the funnest part of all of this is bringing y'all this gift of entrepreneurs because we all come we're just all so different and we do the path so differently but there's a lot of common through lines between it so if you love today's episode definitely reach out and let us know on social or through email um, and then the biggest thing, like we always say, is please share this podcast with a friend. Um, Actually, share this with five friends. Share this with five friends. Also, if you could give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to, those are some of the biggest ways for our podcast to grow. And we've got big goals for 2024. Andrew and I are dreaming for 2024, and we cannot wait. Stay tuned. Have an okay week. Have an okay week. Bye. Bye.